Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Car Chat and on me. On me? On me? With me? <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> Friendlier than expected. <laughs> is Adam Christodoulou. Hello, Adam. How's it going? Not bad. So Adam is, you are at Adam Christo on Instagram and social media and yep. all of these things. And you're a factory race driver. Is that is that the best way of describing yourself? Uh, well, yeah, I suppose at the moment, yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, th- things have been going great the last few years. I signed with AMG back in 2016 and I've managed to keep the ball rolling we've had some great victories and successes along the way and and I suppose uh it'll be time to renew my contract soon it's it's one of them things it's always this time of year you get a little anxious of how it would go <laughs> but they've put me in for one of the last VLNs at the Nürburgring which is uh, this weekend coming so I'm feeling pretty good about plans for next year and there's a few things already signed for next year as well so I'm pretty confident that uh, I'm going to be doing a fairly similar program or i'm going to be equally as busy as i have been this year yeah awesome so can we can you sort of run through vaguely or overall how how you got to the position of driving a factory mercedes gt3 race car well uh how did you get into how did you get into racing so Basically, it was my seventh birthday and my dad took me to the garage and uh, the garage went up and there was this machine and it was my first ever go-kart. And so uh, it was a 60cc Coma de- uh, cadet kart and uh, very small, like still too big for me at the time. Mm. Uh, but like, thankfully I grew into it and he got me a helmet as well. So as a kid, I used to run around the house with this bright yellow helmet. And <laughs> I, I don't know whether it was one of my dad's old ones or whether it was just one of his mates or something, but anyway, it was at the house. And so we all used to run around with this, wearing this helmet. And so anyway, so of course it came to my seventh birthday, got the car and next Saturday we went, uh, we went testing. So of course got me a suit. This thing just like drowned me because they didn't do suits that small. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> like now, nowadays, they they do all sorts of uh, they do the micro carts, so kids can start at the age of three now. Which three, is yeah, they can start testing at the age of three now. Which that's is crazy because like the kids haven't been walking for that long at three. Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> so in fact, I think it was about four years old when we tried to get my brother into karting and. Basically, we had this massive rope, and Dad was like, "Right, you need to run behind the cart." <laughs> and, and of course, if it got out of control, you just had to like try and like hoist this thing and lift the back wheels up so that my little brother wouldn't go flat out. Like, and we we had it on the grat light, and thankfully, uh, my parents got some decent amount of land, so this was in the garden uh, because we thought, right, we'll test it there where it's a bit safe. And that's what we ended up doing, running around the garden behind him. And if he got a bit out of control, we'd just pull that's the thing hilarious. up and, and just lift the rear wheels up. But yeah, I, start, I started when I was seven and I went testing most Saturdays. And actually, to be honest, during the first year of karting, I got a bit bored of it. Like I didn't understand where it was going and that. So anyway, my dad kept on sort of like pushing me to do it. And of course, it came to the, the weekend of my eighth birthday. I had my first race at, uh, at Shennington and... I finished sixth overall and I won the novice trophy. And as they say, the rest was history kind of thing. And once I got rewarded for finishing, obviously, and, and, and for being first in the novice category, I couldn't wait until the next weekend to go racing again. So, yeah, basically it was just nonstop from there. That so really I really started I did, the bug. Exactly. So I did 10 years of karting. So I raced in Coma Cadet. I raced in a bit of TKM. Mini Max, Junior Max, uh, a little bit of Yamaha as well, all the way through the karting categories. I, I did a few races in Europe, in, in Jika and ICA, and then eventually moved into Formula Renault in 2007. Is that quite, uh, is that quite a big jump from, well, first of all, the first karts are like, I'm guessing, pretty slow. And then what, by the time you were finished in karting, what sort of kart were you in at that point? And well, they're pretty rapid things. The cadets, the Coma cadets are 60cc, but of course they weigh nothing. I think the total weight is about 95 kilos. That's including the driver. Yeah. So you've got six horsepower and it's 95 kilos. And so the things still, they, they still reach like 55 mile an hour, which is, <laughs> That's pretty fast. Which is bloody rapid for, <laughs> for when you're seven years old. And of course, back then, like you're fearless, so it doesn't really matter. And then it, eventually, like when you get to Rotax, uh, I think they're pushing about 26, 27 horsepower. And you're able to to reach higher speeds of maybe 80 mile an hour, but you just get there a hell of a lot quicker. Yeah. And obviously, suddenly, you start to put your elbows out, <laughs> and you, you can you can really get stuck in. Uh, I suppose as you, as you grow up. You Did can, you ever have? I've seen some videos of like some karting accidents where like nasty stuff happens. People go like upside down and things. You ever had any <laughs> did any bad karting accidents? Yeah, a few too many. I, I suppose I suppose because when I was racing karts, like I'd race maybe. 47, 48 weekends a year. Um, And some schedule. The majority of the weekends, I'd be racing two carts as well. So I'd race Mini Max and Junior Max at the same time, or I'd race Yamaha and TKM at the same time during the weekend. And there was, I was the driver, my dad was the engineer, and my my older cousin Jamie uh, was the mechanic. And so, of course, we were flat out. And every now and again, we had to get a second mechanic when we were doing the separate classes. So we were flat out all the time. And during my karting career, I had four separate occasions. Uh, I ended up rolling the thing. So uh, I had quite, I suppose it was my first accident, which was probably my worst. And sadly, or unfortunately, my mom was there. And of course, like, she didn't want to see me drive yeah, yeah. ever again kind of thing. But that that one, I suppose, took me the longest to recover uh, f- physically and sort of mentally so as well. Like, I don't think I ever broke something, but... It was only once I was older I've realised that I've got quite a bit less movement in my back than okay. most normal people. So I've had to like take up yoga the last few years as, as my back 
went into to spasm literally like two days before I was going skiing a few years ago. And so I ended up going on the ski holiday, but ended up watching for four days oh, before I was able to, uh, to figure out before I went to the hospital and had some pain relief and, and off I went kind of thing. So I, yeah, I've, I've had four major accidents in carts or where I've ended up rolling the thing, but each time, like I think the last two times I ended up racing that same weekend. Yeah. It's like, right, get the thing back yeah, over yeah. on all four and, Right, let's just uh, rub the dirt off it and off we go kind of thing so um so, so that was that was that was my karting uh or well, incidents thankfully we had a lot more success than we did uh, injuries and accidents of course well, and it's, it's one of those things i guess you you said you were racing 48 weekends a year and sometimes in multiple cars you're you're definitely getting your ten thousand hours in but yes <laughs> so i think i think from just my karting i think i ended up with about 160 victories and about 350 trophies altogether. That's so insane. Like, uh, at my parents' place, when they bought it, the the end room, which we sort of classed as like the trophy room, ended up, mm. we ended up just building shelving all the way around the edge of the room and that's where everything went. And so now they're, they're all in boxes in the loft somewhere. You haven't been tempted to put them up in your in your place <laughs> sadly well mom did say that she was like oh great when you move out you can take all your trophies with you and uh, my girlfriend lid was like uh pam you, you do realize we're going to be moving into a three-bed apartment <laughs> um, not not a house like we don't have a garden we don't really have a loft and stuff so so anyway like i think there's like i don't know 13 or 14 boxes worth of trophies and, yeah. the, and these aren't just small boxes these are like they, <laughs> they only fit through the loft hatch when they're folded and yeah, then, yeah. then we've had to like make them in the loft so anyway, so they're they're upstairs collecting dust. They're there parents. for when you want them at some point. Well, in time. I, I, I said to the, I said to my dad, I was like, "What do we do with these?" And he was like, "I don't know." And I was like, well, "Do we try and sell them or recycle them?" He's like, "No." He goes, "I've invested into all of them trophies. They're mine." So, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, they're still at home. Um, Kids, uh, you could melt them all down and turn them into a sculpture. <laughs> well, that, like, I always thought that it's like right. Let's melt them all down and just make one massive trophy. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, this is my life. <laughs> <laughs> just one big part. Just keep all the little uh, plaques and everything of, of what position they are. So you finished karting. You went into Formula Renault. So that's a jump into single seater. Yep. Was that a big change going from driving a kart to a single seater, or not so much? There was. Yeah, like it, it is quite a big change, and it's. Of course, suddenly you're having to deal with gears, like a lot of carts, uh, unless you move into the, the shifters or yeah, yeah, unless you move into the shifter carts, they're either direct drive where you've got to run along and then basically slam the back of the carts into uh, the ground and that kickstarts the engine. Okay, yeah, uh, it's like a jump, yeah, yeah. Like, like bump starting a road car. So they, they don't have a clutch or yeah, so some of the carts are touch and go. And basically it's got a, a clutch on it, an automatic clutch. So you start the engine, you accelerate and it's, it uh, engages the clutch the more the, the higher it mm. revs and so suddenly you move into a car and and you've got an actual clutch and you've got a you've got six gears and, and brakes so, on the front wheels and you've got yeah and you've got brakes <laughs> on the front wheels so of course suddenly you can lock up the fronts and of course in karting like when you're driving you're almost like reversing it into a lot of the corners to get the thing rotated to get the rear wheel in the air so that it doesn't create the drag around the corner and stuff and then suddenly in a car you've gone from being almost the biggest part of that vehicle in the cart to suddenly you've got an engine that probably weighs three times what you weigh kind of yeah. thing. And so there, there is a huge difference. And of course, most cars or when you move into single seaters, they've got aero as well, which of course is something a little bit unnatural compared to, to anything that you've been in before. So there is quite a, a difference. Suddenly it's not as easy to overtake because in a cart, 
obviously the vehicles are very short whereas in a car you've got the downforce so you lose a little bit on the corners if you're close to the cars mm. in front and then of course on the straights because of the slipstream you'll you'll catch back up but it's it takes a little bit of time to get your head around but i'd been in karting for plenty of years so i i believe i picked it up fairly quickly i went over to ireland a lot i went testing like two days a month for maybe six months before i did my first winter series race oh, okay, in, yeah. in formula renault and then i that was at the end of 2006 2007 i competed in the formula renault british championship uh formula renault yeah formula renault british championship so and that was a that was a good season it was at the start of the year it's like right okay where during pre-season i was like fifth and sixth and I remember my dad asking me, he was like, right, where do you think you're going to finish this year? I was like, I don't know, maybe fifth, sixth. And he's like, who do you think is going to be in front? And I remember him like sort of like losing his, <laughs> <laughs> losing it a little bit with me. Like, this isn't good enough. Anyway, um, I remember at the time my, my teammate was Jeremy Metcalf. And he was like, Peter, which is my dad. He's like, don't worry about it. He goes, we'll get to the first race and we'll be up there. And funnily enough, as it happened, we got to the first race and suddenly we were up there. And of course, a lot of teams, which is the sort of shame thing about it, is weight is a big advantage or disadvantage, obviously a big advantage if you're underweight. And so what a lot of the teams do is to get people going and obviously to build up confidence in that they'll run the cars a little bit lighter. And then of course, suddenly it comes to the first race and everyone's (laughs) got to be on equal terms and and reality kicks in a little bit. So so that was that was good for us. I finished fourth in my first year of Formula Renault, won the uh, rookie championship. And then the next year in 2008, I went on to win the championship. So, so that was brilliant back then. And of course, we were having conversations like with McLaren and stuff. And Anthony Hamilton managed us for a short while as well, uh, me and my cousin. And uh, of course, at the time, it's like, oh, you could be like uh, the Schumacher brothers. And of course, we were like, oh, this would be brilliant. But sadly, it's just one of them things that we just couldn't generate enough sponsorship to go to the next level. So I ended up doing an F3 test. It didn't quite go to plan. I was testing next to uh, Bottas. And even though we'd raced in Formula Renault, we'd had some good battles between us. And suddenly in the F3 test, it was just miles ahead. And mm. it was like, what the hell is going on anyway? The test didn't go as planned. And of course, we were a bit down from that. And then we found out that the team had already signed all four drivers for the next <laughs> season. So of course, again, reality check that it was one of them like... Sadly, they took our uh, test money yeah, and, your spot. and they'd already got all their, all their drivers ready for next year. So I ended up had conversations with my dad, like, what, what's the plan now? Do we maybe do the British? Because it was a bit more affordable compared mm. to the European F3. And then we're like, well, maybe in America, maybe that's the, the better direction to go to. So I ended up, I went out there for a two-day test at Sebring and... I tested the Star Master. So it's a rotary engine. It's got three rotors on it and the thing screams and it spits out flames out the back of it kind Sick. of thing. Sounds pretty awesome. Big wheels, like very, everything's on it. It's just like bigger than life kind of thing. It's got massive <laughs> rear wing. Uh, it's got massive tires on it and and uh, it's it's pretty awesome car to drive. So I ended up doing the two-day test and I was quickest there, three out of the five sessions and then second quickest in, in the other two sessions. And by the time I'd made it home, the news had come out that I hadn't actually signed with the team I was testing with. And so I almost had an email off every single team saying, right, come and race for us. And oh, I had nice. a load of different budgets and uh, options to go with. And so I ended up going with, um, yeah, I raced Star Mazda with, uh, what did I say? J- uh, JDC, yeah, Motorsport. Yeah, JDC Motorsport and John Church. And he, he was kind enough to, to look after me for the season. And we ended we went on to win the Star Master Championship. So, of course, that, that was brilliant for us and part of winning that championship. Of course, at the time, the exchange rate was good, so that helped us. 
because the the pounder mm. the, the pound was stronger than <laughs> yeah, right now. At one point in time. <laughs> um, and also the the prize money was brilliant over there as well. And so if you won the championship, Mazda funded your next season's racing oh, okay. in the next That's category. Quite a so it's like incentive. wow, right? Okay. And so we won the championship, and Mazda wanted me to race in the Atlantic series, but unfortunately that collapsed, and so that ended up changing a few things for me and in the end i think it was a blessing in disguise because they put me in their sports car program in their mazda rx8 with speed source and i, I raced with with john edwards who's now one of the factory drivers for for bmw mm. and uh so we raced in the mazda together and we we had a pretty awesome season but we missed the first round of the championship and of course it got to the end of the season they're like right we want you to come back blah, blah, blah. i was like yeah great we'd love to and they're like right how much sponsorship can you bring and of course at the time i was like spend uh, time <laughs> yeah i was like uh, there's nothing left so they're like well anyway we're gonna honor the daytona 24 hours because we we missed it because it's so early in the the season they're like we'll honor it for for next year so of course i came back home and i was thinking wow well, i'm about to do a 24 hour race and the longest race i've competed in is four hours okay like, yeah yeah how am i gonna prepare for this so of course there was in the uk there used to be the the brick car 24 hours around silverstone so the plan was i was thinking well Maybe if I can do that, that just give me a bit of an idea of whether I'll be able to sleep during the race and yeah. how exhausted I'll end up getting and all of that. So I rang my old team manager that I won the Formula Renault with and I said to him, I was like, look, do you know anyone in the Brick Car 24 hours? It's on this date. And so I gave him all the info and he comes back to me the next day. He's like, look, because I don't know anyone there because I had you fancy driving our uh, Ferrari GT2 that weekend at Monza. <laughs> I was like, dad, 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 I, I need a flight to Italy. So, uh, so off I went, went to Italy. Raced with Tim Mullen and CRS Racing, and we finished third. So, so nice. Never been to the track before. Never driven this car. Like yeah. old school, proper sequential on the thing. No ABS. What sort of year was this? This would have been two thousand and eleven. The very start of two thousand eleven. So no, sorry, sorry, the, the end of two thousand and ten. And so I did that race, and they're like, right, great job. Do you want to do the next one? Same again. This one's in Barcelona. They're like, just get yourself a flight in a hotel and, and off you go kind of thing. So really threw me a lifeline there and I ended up going there and then there was a test day. So we, we competed or we ended up doing the test day. There's a few different drivers there and there was two seats in one of the GT2 Ferraris and Andrew, the, the team manager, was like, well, why don't you uh, jump in and see whether you can teach one of the other guys? So everyone's like, no, you're mad, you're mad. I was like, well, it's fine. They're like, what happens if you crash? And I was thinking, well, Surely we'll be going at a slower speed if I crash with him than if I was on my own kind of thing, like a little naive. So, yeah. uh, so anyway, jumped in and of course the car was that loud, like it's a straight exhaust on the thing and it was like a shotgun going off on the pit limiter. It was yeah. unreal, like the popping and banging was unreal. It so anyway, so badass. Yeah, it's it it really, really loud and uh, really cool. Like it's, it's funny how you get used to quiet motorsport now. Like if you hear something loud now, it's like, oh, my ears. But of course back then you're like, you'd feel it going through your body. The thing was that loud. I've just come back from the peter auto event at poor ricard right so, okay yeah yeah and we had i was taking pictures of the 90s and 2000s le mans car grid yeah so yeah. we had a 458 gc2 yeah yeah and like everything's and on like, straight pipes c- coming towards you it's not that bad as soon as the exhaust gets past the point oh, yeah. where you're standing it's like eight times louder yeah, yeah it's, it's incredible it like blows you away kind of thing and so so yeah so we we, we ended up racing that and that race i finished second so it's like right great okay then and during the winter, basically, the, the guy that ended up coaching on the two days, of course, we're going around. I was like, right, go, go, go. I was like, on the brakes. 
I was like, right, third gear, this corner, and like, I'd, just the weird. You got a bunch of hand signals now. For when yeah, you're in the car. yeah, almost. Like, well, even when I instruct now, like, I'm very animated with yeah. with how I do stuff. I'm like, right, go, 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 go. Right now, full power kind of thing. Because, of course, even even whilst coaching or it doesn't matter what you're doing, you can't just stamp on the power because that's when you get a big energy transfer yeah. through the car. So you've always got to feed it and you've got to give the car notice of what you want it to do. So it's the same with, uh, I suppose it's why I'm animated as well. And also every now and again, I get my left and right wrong. So of course it's just better <laughs> if I just point. Right, okay, let's turn it in. Now. <laughs> yeah, that way. Yeah, turn left. <laughs> Your left or my left? No. So, um... <laughs> do you ever have like mics to the each person? Yeah, so so a lot of the coaching that I do, I've got two Renault Clios that I use for coaching. Okay. And they've both got dual control, so I've got a clutch and brake in the passenger side. Oh, nice. I've got a data logger in it as well. And so when I get someone new, literally the data logger takes a picture of that person. And then on the map, you can download it onto my iPad. I use a, a it's called a race navigator. It's a brilliant piece of software and equipment. So it's, it's extremely popular at the Nürburgring. Um, okay. So it'll draw the outline of... Of the track, and then you can put it over Google Maps, and you can actually see on the track. Like you can zoom into the oh, thing, nice. and you can see the difference of right. You're a meter over to the left compared to me. Oh and, wow, that's really cool. And then you can look at the braking points and all of that. So it's it's a real useful bit of kit that that I use for coaching. It's it's almost they've now they've made a race car version for it, but it's more for like road cars. Like hmm. it's just plug and play. Literally, you can take it out into the cigarette lighter, powers it up. You can put on there what car you're in. It's already got some preloaded cars in there. I've got like a. a a plug that goes into the OBD, OBD yeah. yeah. So it tells you your, your throttle and like the the revs and stuff. Not not most road cars don't have like have a the brake stuff, pressure yeah. sensor, but some of the Porsches and stuff do. So it's a real great piece of like kit that you, that you can use. So I end up using that for for coaching, and you can see like how you get on the power and and how aggressive you are. And it's also got like all the G sensors and everything on it. So I end up using that. And yeah, it's just a great tool for coaching. And of course, so in that you can talk to each other. It's very civilized because it's a road car. Like that, Whereas yeah. suddenly if you're in a race car, like if you're in the, I do a lot of coaching for, for young drives in the Genetta juniors and the Genetta okay. GT5. Yeah. And they are two land and you've got your full face helmet on as well. So that's when I, I run a Stilo helmet. And so I've got like the Stilo kit, which I can plug into everyone else's helmets as well. Okay. And then I've got uh, like an emergency ear piece kit, which you can just slide each side of the driver or in between the driver's ears and the helmet so at least i can talk to them they might not necessarily or i might not necessarily be able to hear them but generally it's me the one that's doing all the talking whilst whilst they're working on their technique and, and concentrating on what's in front of them with some of the like the gt cars do you can you put a, spe- a second seat in them most gt well yeah at the end of the day all like all gt cars are based on road cars yeah. and so there is normally a space in the passenger side we, we've got a seat for the amg gt3 but in in the amg it's like a we've got a carbon fiber monocell in the car and yeah. so it's almost like a formula car cockpit like <laughs> that's been wedged in into the actual race car and so we, we've done it for safety and also we're able to make all the seats are personalized. So the biggest driver tends to get the base layer. Okay. And then each driver that's smallest, I'm always one of the smallest. So I end up basically with like a booster seat that yeah, ends yeah. up slotting straight into theirs. And the the pedals adjust and the steering wheel adjusts. And so uh, like I've, I raced with class and he's almost two meters tall. So that's quite... A yeah, bit taller quite a than big difference. It's yeah. quite a bit taller than I am, and in fact, that was the, the Mercedes was the first car that he jumped in, and he looked small in it, <laughs> just because I suppose it's just a base seat, so you can yeah. have him as high or as low as as they feel. So, correct. when you get in the car, can you move the pedals? Yeah, so we we've got a little lever to oh, the right okay. of us. Oh, that's really good. 
yeah, it is to the right, to the right of us. And yeah, the pedals just slide, slide backwards forward, and yeah. forwards and then just like a road car underneath and you can oh, pull okay. it up, down and, and you can position yourself and then, then you lock it in. And then generally we've got our driver ID as well. So like during a pit stop change, we, we've got our five point harness. So of course you suddenly, you jump in, you grab the first belt and the driver that's jumped in does the first connection to the buckle. The driver on the outside Whilst you're doing this, he's plugging in your radio and your drink okay, system. Yeah. Then he goes straight in with the second. Whilst he's doing that, you're finding, it's either like on a magnet or it's on Velcro for your shoulder strap and that goes in. And then he puts in the final strap oh, okay. and plugs in the uh, the window net, slams the door and off, off you go. You go kind of thing. And we end up doing all of that. Like we, we've been able to get it to down to like 14, 15 seconds, which Ooh. which you need to in the in the sprint series. Like when you're doing the block pan sprint, if if you're not within like 17 seconds, you're losing time. And of course, if you lose one second in the pit lane, that's so if, hard if you're only up. one tenth a lap quicker, it could take you 10 laps to eventually catch that one second up. So it's vital not to lose any time during the pit stops. In the endurance stuff, generally we'll have a longer time or like in British GT, just to make it easy because a lot of it's uh, pro-am racing. So that's one pro driver and one amateur like, or a gentleman driver. Every driver's graded bronze, silver, gold, platinum. And so what you're only you? allowed a, a certain combination. I'm gold. And so it's it's the only time you almost want to under-promote yourself. Yeah. You're be like, no, 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 I've had a really bad year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah downgrade me, downgrade me. So, like, of course, so in British GT, you're allowed uh, like a bronze and a gold. Well, you're allowed a bronze on anything, but your strongest lineup's going to be a bronze and a gold or a bronze, a bronze and a platinum. The difference yeah. between bronze, gold and platinum is very minimal. Like, it's... If you've got a super license or if you've won them on 24 hours, you're classed as a platinum. Okay. What's uh, a super license? So like F1 or something? Yeah, for, for F1. And so I think that's the only championship you need the super license for. And so, so that makes you a platinum. Gold is like factory drivers or drivers that have proved themselves. And then silver uh, is generally the up and coming drivers. So basically after one year's racing, you automatically become a silver if you're under the age of 30. Oh, okay. Because of course, when you're younger, you pick things up a lot quicker yeah. and and you'll be able to, yeah, you'll just be able to learn and improve a lot quicker. Whereas if you start over the age of 30, you're almost bronze for life. So then you'll be able to partner yourself yeah. with the best or the strongest combination you can, can put together. So in British GT, it's pro-am. So you've got to have one bronze and a gold or platinum, or you can have two silvers. And then there's a minimum pit time just so that the, the drivers are putting the cars correctly and you've got Chris, all the belts yeah, yeah. And so that. just it's only mainly in the super pro categories where you've got to do it as fast as possible but then at the same time of course fuel again depending on the championship sometimes you can only fuel and then you can do the tires after some of them you're allowed to do fuel and tires at the same time and of course this ends up making the pit stop shorter so generally there's enough time to get yourself in make sure your belts are all correct get them all tightened yeah. up and get your steering wheel and everything correct and do your driver id and <laughs> Do you find a, there's a compromise in your seating position because of multiple drivers or is actually the way it, it's worked, at least for you, it's not so bad? <laughs> so when, yeah, like at times, sometimes it's a little difficult, like especially if you're doing a 24 hours, you want to make sure that the seat's as close to perfect for you because yeah. if, if, if you're moving around in the car, of course you end up stabilising yourself, using your shoulders without realising and you can be in the car for up to three hours. Like that's generally the maximum length stint that any driver's allowed to do uh, in like the Spa 24 hours yeah. or the Le Mans 24. For me, I think Spa 24 hours is the most physical 24 hours there is out there because 
like Nürburgring, okay, it's known as the green hell, but actually a lot of it's very flowing. Okay. And so it's just lots of little movements going all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Spa, like turn one, the source, big braking zone. So, okay, like you're hard on the brakes, uh, you go into the seat, into the belt, and then you go straight down, flat out into Eau Rouge. Like you're doing a Eau Rouge at like uh, 220 kilometers an hour in a, in a GT3 car. And it's like, borderline touch and go flat out all the way through the thing <laughs> so suddenly you go through there and that's like a, a little kink to the left and then obviously the compression up the right and then over the top and then you get to the end of camel straight and you've got turn five six and seven and that's a left right left so suddenly you're like going through there and you're getting thrown around and then you go into brussels hairpin and then there's no name corner i think it's called and then it goes into puron and all of that and that's just a long loaded corner and so and that's only half the track. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, there's almost no time to like catch your breath kind of thing. Whereas at least at the Nürburgring, everything's just little adjustments, okay, right? Okay. Yeah. And then, and, you, and you'll get like maybe a 10, 15 second break before you've got to like have a big braking zone. But then generally it's, it's all very flowing at the Nürburgring. Once you get to like the tallest part of the track after the carousel, that part starts to get, well, you, you're pretty busy through there, but then you've got the back straight all the way back to the pit lane, which is, like three kilometers to, to catch your breath back and try and get in the slipstream <laughs> yeah, and yeah. get dragged along with someone. No, it's, it sounds really cool. My, my only experience of that is I've driven my SR, I've got a radical SR3. Yeah. I've yeah. driven that at a couple of tracks, but I did spa earlier this year. Yeah. What do you and think? I just ruined my neck. <laughs> like I was, I've never been so dead after a day. We did a, a day with, it's, they're, they're it's not SRO, and- but, one of those track day organised where you just had we just had tons and tons of track ah, time. So it'd have been curbstone. Curb yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's so yeah, curbstone's owned by SRO. So you're either allowed GT3 or GT4 race cars, or there's a road car group, but it's got to be like a high performance road car, so nothing less than 400 horsepower yeah. or anything. So and those days are pretty full on. It was it was it was wicked, and it was awesome. It's, I fell. love it being on track with all those other cars. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite fun, like rinsing the old GT4. It's classed as a track day, but with test day rules where you're yeah. you're allowed to overtake on any side, which is very unusual. Like in the UK, almost all the track day companies only allow you to overtake on the left hand side, and it's for safety and insurance. Otherwise, the prices end up going up, and then of course, at the end of the day, it ends up being the customer that ends up having to pay for it. The yeah, more exclusive yeah. it is, or the more free you're allowed to do stuff. So, so I understand why they do it to to have more people on the track days and just to make it safe for everyone because. On a track day, you can have, as long as your car is below the noise limit, you can almost take anything, whether it's a race car or not. If it is a race car, so you've got to wear all the full fireproof and everything correctly for it. But, of course, the last thing you want to do is go into a corner and someone suddenly dive bombs you <laughs> yeah, without yeah. experience and and, and and you connect. So, whereas on a test day, generally at that point, you should have more experience and there should be less dramas like that happening anyway and, and it should run smoothly. Weirdly... It doesn't always seem to be like that. <laughs> my, no. my experience of some GT3 cars, sometimes with Lamborghini badges on. Um, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> doing a lot of, a lot of late braking, a lot diving down the inside. And it's, it's one of those things, I, I'm so much more comfortable with other cars on track than I used to be, whatever, like three years ago. Yeah, yeah. So overtaking either side, especially if I'm in like the Radical, for example, it's just so much better because... When the first car starts braking, you don't start braking for another bloody 200 metres. Oh, yeah, the Radical can slow down within half the distance of most road cars just because of the aero that it's got. And it's a road car. It's, it's a race car rather than a, than a road yeah. car. And so, and it's got slick tyres on it, 
normally and so uh the, the performance of the radicals pretty incredible and just power to weight ratio them things that make some mini rocket ships they're pretty hilarious like the top speed isn't as fast as some of the others but the cornering's unreal the braking's unreal and the initial acceleration's pretty rapid on them yeah i'm it's i've always found it really interesting being on track with gt3 cars because obviously they're so much faster on the straight but in the corner they're like similar i think yeah, yeah. Potentially well, even a little bit slower. Sil- I think around Silverstone, I think they're almost the same lap times. Yeah. And of course, but Sil- Silverstone's a bit of a, a different track because it's, even though it's got quite a long straight, everyone's like, oh no, because of the long straight, you need minimum downforce. But actually everything at Silverstone's like third, fourth gear, like all the corners. Mm. So you need a lot of downforce for the stability and to have the thing sucked to the floor going around these corners. So actually in the UK, it's one of the highest downforce circuits that, that we've got because all the corners are high speed. Yeah. Okay, on the straight, it might hurt you a little bit, but if you carry that extra three, four kilometers at the start of the straight, by the time you get to the end of the straight, it doesn't make any difference whether you've got the extra downforce or not. But yeah, Silverstone, I think the Radicals are very close to the GT3 cars, whereas in Shanghai two weeks ago, the GT3s were miles quicker just because the track's a lot more stretched out I'd, and there's there's a lot more straight. Yeah, are GT3 cars much quicker now than they were five years ago? They could be. <laughs> so so we, we have this thing called BOP yeah. balance of performance and at the end of the day like a Ferrari would be quicker than a Bentley like on on the track if it was allowed to just be fully unleashed yeah. and so they do this thing where BOP everything's got to be within a certain aero window so they'll go aero testing with every manufacturer on the straight to see how much it compresses and okay, they'll do a yeah. lot of stuff on the rigs as well and they'll see how much it slows down like once you like lift off the power and then every every brand's got its strengths and weaknesses. And so what they do is they try and get everything so it's the same lap time. So, of course, there's a bit of politics involved. But generally, like, the Mercedes and the Audi are almost like the, the two benchmark cars. They haven't changed much over the yeah. last few years. So they're the benchmark. And then they just everyone else is to be within the window to try and make them all spot on. So, like, the Mercedes is super good on its tyres. It's not the quickest on the straights, but it's good around the high-speed corner, super stable, and it seems to give everyone a lot of confidence. Everyone that jumps in it seems to do extremely well very, mm. very soon. Whereas like the Bentley and the Nissan and the Porsche seem to have good top-end speed, but their tyre degradation might be a bit more harsh, so they'll run out of tyres towards the end of a stint, for example. And then the Porsche's got great traction because of where the motor's located in the car. So, of course, that like comes off the hairpins like a rocket ship, but then it's high speed cornering isn't quite as strong as like the Mercedes for example the BMW is super good around high speed corners as well and big flowing tracks is good for the BMW so every car's got its strengths and weaknesses and they they basically they try and get everything so it does roughly the same lap time and that's what generates all this great racing that you've got all these different brands and all of them can compete against each other and uh, of course the teams have to do lots of testing like every car like each year will get a little bit quicker and a little bit quicker. And then they'll just try and control it if it, if it starts to get a little bit out of control. But the SRO and the FIA do a brilliant job at uh, making sure that everyone's within the parameters and all the cars are homologated. So you can't just, you can't do development. Like this was yeah, one yeah. thing that was getting out of control a few years ago where like maybe 2011, 12, 13, that you just end up developing new parts for the cars. And of course, suddenly the, the price was spiraling out of control. Whereas now, a car is homologated for three, four years, unless it's got a safety or reliability issue, then it's allowed okay. to make certain adjustments. But of course, everything's becoming more reliable now. So 
there's very minor changes from from year from to year. From year to year. Yeah, because I, I don't know why. I, I thought they would change like every year, <laughs> like, like the road cars. Like, I think if you went back 10 years ago now, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the GT4s are doing the same times as what the GT3s were doing 10 years ago. So we've definitely got quicker over the years. But like, I think we run at like maybe 525 horsepower or 500 horsepower, yeah. whereas we could probably run an extra... 100 to 150 horsepower if we were allowed yeah and we could take a lot of weight out of the car and the thing would be like a missile but not all the manufacturers have that margin to be able to do that so that's why it's all regulated and everyone's got minimum weight limits and to make sure everyone does the same lap time is there an advantage to like a small a a turbocharged engine versus a naturally aspirated engine in the sense that because you're restricting it you have more torque in a turbocharged engine it? It's it's well, I don't quite know enough about it, but all the turbo cars have maximum turbo, like the maximum pressure that they're oh, allowed to boost. Yeah. And and if they go over it, I think they get like one opportunity to go over it, and then it's basically disqualification. Okay. So so everything's controlled, and so and I think it's like every hundred RPM or something that everything's controlled. So of course there is no grey areas where manufacturers can take advantage and everything's of logged. it. Yeah, everything's logged. So a special data logger goes into every car on the grid. So championship supply these to the teams that have to rent them for the season. And so that, that measures all the boost pressures. It's all their own sensors. It's all the championship sensors. So there's no being able to like offset anything to, to try and go away thing with things. It's just not possible. So uh, everything's recorded by the championship. And of course, if anything steps out of the parameters, then it flashes up red and or get investigated. So the championships have worked extremely hard to make sure that it's fair for everyone. Do you feel like it generally is pretty fair? Yes. So um, I, I think it is fair. Every, every now and again, there'll be like one manufacturer that suddenly just has an advantage and you're scratching your head trying to understand what's happened here or like how have have they managed to do that. But I suppose it's, it's like anything like in the AMG, we, we've had a, a very good run. We, we're always... We're not always the fastest, but we're always within like the top five percent kind yeah. of thing, and and we're always fighting at the, the right end of the field. And I think it's like that because, like Mercedes and Audi, I think they're very good at showing right this this is the limit. And of course, it is possible for manufacturers to hide a few things, and then for the big races, they show it. And yeah. gen- generally, Le Mans, anyone? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That, that, well, that's with the GTEs and some of the other things. But in GT3, of course, every, everything's logged. And I suppose the, the good thing about GT3 is there's so many cars all over the world. So SRO, they, they manage the British GT3, the Blancpain Endurance, Blancpain Sprint, the European GT4, the uh, Pirelli World Challenge in America, the FIA Macau Race and everything. And so they've got all these brands doing all these yeah. things. So there is no hiding. Because, of course, if you get give yourself an advantage or you... you keep your powder dry and for one, one race them, yeah. then it's going to come back and it's going to haunt you for everything else so in the end you've, you've got to show your cards kind of thing and so i think they do an extremely good job at it and i think you can see that if you if you look at all the championships it's almost so in the end it was between mercedes and lamborghini for the blanc pan endurance yeah. and in the end just because of the contact and the, the last blanc pan race ended up being a bit of a mess and so the lamborghini ended up winning last year the mercedes won and it's always very close and um at the end of the day, that's what we all want. If it, if it wasn't fair, then people wouldn't do it. And when there's a grid of 50 plus cars, it's because people have trust in the system and that uh, yeah. that it's fair for everyone. Do you have a favourite series that you do? Because you do quite, you throughout the year, do quite a lot of different 
<clears throat> series, don't you? Yes. So, so like for for example, this year I, I've been lucky enough that I've been doing the British GT. I've raced in selected VLN races at the Nurburgring Nordschleife, uh, the Nurburgring Twenty Four Hours. I've been racing in the China GT Championship and the Chinese Endurance Championship. And then I also I did the Spa 24 Hours, which is part of the Blanc Pan. Like, I suppose the big one that everyone sort of goes for is the, the Blanc Pan Endurance Championship. It's the biggest GT3 championship in, in the world. And you can race the GT3 car anywhere. Like They've got the championships in America and all that. So for in Europe, the Blanc Pan is probably the biggest and mm. the one with the most amount of cars. And then there's also like GT Open as well. And then each country almost has its own national championship as well which which it can be a part of i suppose the blanc pan is one that everyone targets that's the one where it's probably the most competitive but like i love racing at the nurburgring and i seem to have made a bit of a name for myself there and so i suppose for me it's like my second home almost <laughs> i go there and generally i know it's it's gonna unless something goes wrong it's gonna be a good weekend kind of thing blanc pan i was in i did the spa 24 hours this year sadly we didn't make it to the end but in a 24 hours it's always very like just to finish a 24 hours is a huge success on yeah. its own. So uh, we, unfortunately we didn't finish this year, but uh, we, we've had some good results in the past there. So I've, I'm really enjoying going to China at the moment. Just, I don't know whether it's just because every time I go there, it's a massive eye opener for me, just like whether it's just the food or the travel, like just <laughs> yeah, understanding yeah. the people like, and how they just, their mentality th- to things over there is completely mm. different to, to in Europe and in the, in the UK. So that for me is like really exciting, just understanding and learning about their culture over there. And, and the, Chinese, uh, the Chinese GT championship seems to be growing at quite a rate at the moment. So this year there was maybe seven, eight factory drivers all in different cars. And uh, of course, we're all working with our AM drivers, just trying to get the best out of them. Of course, the quicker our AM drivers are, the easier it makes our job. And so uh, I've been lucky enough that I've been racing with uh, Eric Zhang. He's uh, the owner of Toro Racing and he's he's been putting a lot of time and effort into it and he's just set up his new team for, for this season. And we it's been great watching the team just grow. And it looks like next year they'll be running, this year they ran the one car, next year they're going to be running at least three cars just because we've done such a good job during the season. They've already picked up customers for, for next year and so... It's been good being a part of that. And, and so I'm, I'm expecting that that's going to help make me busy as well next year. Yeah. How does, how does that work? So at the moment, you presumably you have a contract with Mercedes to race for like over the year or, or do they just ask you to race certain events? How, how does that work? So um, I, I've signed exclusive with them. So if everything that I race is in the Mercedes. Uh, if I want to race anything else, I have to ask permission. So yeah. actually last year I did one prototype race at uh, Port Ricard. So, so that was a new experience for me. So I raced in the LMP3 car. And this year, I was a bit unsure whether they had allowed me to, but basically uh, the Wednesday before this Spa 25-hour Funk Up race, I was asked to do that <laughs> as well. And so I asked them, and t- to be honest, I thought they were just going to say no because uh, being a German manufacturer, and yeah. they're like, well, yeah, as long as it doesn't overlap any testing yeah. regulations for the Spa 24 hours, then then that's fine. So, uh, so I had my first taste of the VW Fun Cup, the Spa 25 hours this year, which which was brilliant. But uh, yeah, my contract for a full season, it just seems to be a rolling contract and it works well for both of us. I get to do a good amount of uh, media days for them as well. So this year we had Mercedes 125 years of motorsport. So this was a huge event that we held at Silverstone and we had some real old school classic cars, uh, like the original Gullwing was there. Oh, cool. Uh, we, we had... A GT3, a GT4 there as well. Some of the old Mercedes rally cars like the SL230. Bottas was there as well. And so uh, 
and it was just uh, so Lewis Hamilton turned up, uh, Toto Wolff was there, and like we just all got to jump in these different cars and and basically have a fun three days just like going around the international circuit at Silverstone. We had the cameras there and we were just, well, I felt like we were just playing. I thought it was great. I saw some videos. I think I saw some of like the Toto and Lewis and we were driving around. It looked like like a wicked time. Oh, it was. It was brilliant. Yeah, it it was. It's like, here's some cars. The keys are in them. Which one do you fancy going? So, uh, I, I ended up playing or playing a bit of a late April Fool's stroke. So, uh, I asked whether I could sit in the F1 car, like just because, of course, they, they were warming it up and all of that. So I managed to squeeze into Lewis's seat. Yeah. And uh, I said, oh, can I stick my helmet on? So of course, I put my helmet on and I got <laughs> one of the lads to take a few photos. So one, one of the mechanics there, um, he was my number one mechanic when I was in in the Ferrari GT2. And uh, I've known him all the way through Ferrari and McLaren. And we've always stayed in touch anyway. So he's like, yeah, okay. So anyway, we took a few photos. And then I got a video of Lewis going out the pits and going past on the straight. And... Uh, <laughs> Of course, just amusing myself. I was like, well, that escalated. And of yeah. course, I posted it on social media and it just went wild kind of thing. And uh, in the end, I suppose the joke was on me because everyone thought I had to go in this F1 car. And, and I you just, didn't. And yeah. I didn't. So uh, I just got to warm it up for him. So, <laughs> so you've done a ton of 24-hour races now. And you said you said you got to do the, the Fun Cup. How did doing the Fun Cup compare to doing, let's say, Spa 24? The the fun cup for me was like so obviously for, for Spa and for the GT stuff obviously we've got to we've got to take it very seriously obviously uh, it's a huge investment from the manufacturers from the teams with time and money and all of that and obviously we want to do the best job possible with the fun cup it was uh, basically it was a family team so I was racing with uh, dad and his two sons mm. and there was the four of us in the nice. car and so uh, not at the same time obviously we. We drive, we come in after like an hour and 20 minutes. Four in the car would be quite funny. (laughs) In the fun cup, in a Beetle. So it's got 200 horsepower. It's got some funny little wing on the back of it. And and they're just great fun. They're they're on road tyres. So like during a normal 24 hours, we'll change tyres maybe 23, 24 times. It's almost one set every hour. Yeah. How many times do you reckon we change tyres in the fun cup? Well, I'm going to make make an educated guess. Uh, Seven? Six? Less, yeah, four. We changed tires once, once during, during the no whole way. race. We got to like thirteen hours, and it had worn the outside like edge of the tire. So we changed the tire, and off we went and did the next twelve hours. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, the next twelve hours. So, and each all the pit stops are like refueling. You got to be in the fueling station for five minutes. And the reason they've done that is because you put in about forty liters in it, and it lasts for like an hour and twenty minutes or something. And they've realised if the safety cars and that, there's a huge advantage of coming in the pits and filling there. So what they've done is they've stopped everyone that you've got to pit for five minutes. Okay. So whether it's a safety car or not, in in the end, there's no advantage from pitting. They've, oh, okay. made, they've managed, the yeah, car. they've managed to make it so it's fair for everyone, or everyone can pit during a safety car because the safety car is going to always last for like at least fifteen minutes yeah. around Spa. And so it gives everyone the opportunity and they'd worked it out that, uh, or we'd worked it out that even if there's 30 cars ahead of you in refueling, you don't get a disadvantage. Okay. So that's quite interesting because I've, and I'm about to do this weekend, the C1 24 right, yeah, hour, yeah, yeah. similar sort of joker race. And, um, oh, it's you, incredible how, like, okay. So like when you first hear about it, you think, Oh, it just sounds like a bag of laughs kind of thing. But actually, it's incredible how serious, obviously, there's a few people that are in it, that that is their main championship that they're focusing on. 
and you can see that in the teams. Like we we were in a team that ran twelve cars. Yeah. And and of course there was a handful of us from the team that had a chance of winning, but of course I was very new to it. And so just understanding some of the strategy with like qualifying and that, like it'll be the same for you. So for qualifying at Spa in a C one, you want to be in a train of about five or six cars. Yeah. But you've got to work with five or six other cars and you've got to try and understand which cars are quick so that you can all go out and do the qualifying. So yeah, qualifying started and everyone set their times and I went out like second or third and I went out and I was like two and a half seconds off the pace. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I was thinking, <laughs> what am I doing? Anyway, it was only once the race had really started that I realized that by working in a group of two or three, you go two and a half seconds yeah. a lot quicker. So for for the fun cup, there was, I think it was the top 20, like qualifying to Super Pole. And then they get sent out a minute apart. So during that qualifying, they're all about two seconds slower, oh, really? two and a half seconds slower than the actual yeah. qualifying that they did earlier. <laughs> and it's just because that's just pure one car, one man, one machine and no strategy of getting slipstream or anything. Yeah. And it'll be the same for the, In the, the C1s. C1s like, the same. They've got the aerodynamics of, of a brick. <laughs> so if you can work with you're probably going to have to work with like four cars. Yeah, all line up, bump all, each other down all the All line straight. up and literally like you'll, you'll take it in turns like a relay race to like go past each other on, on like on, on the straight. I wouldn't be surprised that like we were able to overtake going into a Rouge and then if you got the toe going through a Rouge, you'd then be able to overtake another car by the end of the straight. Sure. And it was like the first time that it was like going back into karting. I remember in karting, like you could start in the front row, get taken out at the start, drop back to 30th. And by the end of your, your 10, 12, 15 laps, you could be back in like the top five kind of thing and yeah. you'd have a brilliant race. And sadly, that doesn't happen quite as much in GTs or, or in cars in general, just because of the aerodynamics and all of that. But in the Fun Cup, like we, we qualified 39th after getting taken out in qualifying. And by the end of the first 45 minutes, I was up into ninth position. Mm. And it's like a game of chess. Like you you got to understand, right, if I overtake at La Source, and I don't have a toe going into a rouge, I'm going to get eaten alive. Yeah. So it's almost better just to defend, to stop anyone else overtaking you. And then get the toe, get the toe going like into uh, a rouge and then try and get the toe going out of it and all of that. And it's like a game of chess almost. As, as you, Yeah, as so around. much strategy involved in, in all of that. But uh, it's interesting they've removed the safety car aspect of pitting under safety car because that's such normally such a big part of... <laughs> Well, what they do is they do Racing. like um, they they had two actually they had two safety cars, but I think it was just the problem is when you've got 130 cars, <laughs> like, you don't want them all to come in at once. Yeah, if you're coming at once, and of course if you're the first one to come in, you're going to end up with such an advantage compared to being yeah. like if you're a bang in the middle, or you're like the 40th car in, it's going to hammer you kind of thing. So they they just try and make it so that. Just, just a bit just, fair. Yeah, just to try and make it fair for everyone. And I'm assuming that it might be the same for the Citroen C1. Like we had to go down the, the Grand Prix pit lane and then the endurance pit lane. It was at the end of the endurance pit lane that we, we turned right and we went into the fueling station there. And it's mm. all coned off. So I'm assuming that it'll be the same for, for you guys. I think we refuel in the pits. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But then there's the, the whole process of, I think, for this. Everyone's got like a hand pump or you just it's, use it's like just a, a normal can, big can. Type right, things. okay, okay. <laughs> and you have to, you're not allowed to have your seatbelts done up whilst they're refueling. Right. So you can get in the car. Yep. Then they start refueling, but they're not allowed to change tyres or anything. Right, okay. Once okay. they finish refueling, then you can swap tyres or whatever. But you yep. normally, I think we were double or triple stinting um, tyres. But the fuel, a tank of fuel in a C1, we, drivers were hitting the three-hour limiter. 
on one tank on of fuel. On one tank of fuel. Oh, with right. like safety cars and in the wet and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. I think and I think flat out it's like two hours fifteen or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Like yeah, in a, in a GT car you don't go any longer than an hour and fifteen, an hour and twenty minutes. That's it. Like you're out of fuel. That's 120 litres. Yeah. Um, of course, like ge- generally we've either got four litre turbos or we've got like an armor. We've got You're a massive... you ass. Yeah, we've got a massive 6.2 litre engine just like guzzling a few f- fuel. For people that have never driven a GT3 car, mm-hmm. like myself, for example, how would you explain the difference between a, let's say, a Porsche 911 GT3 RS, very fast, very track capable road car versus the GT3 version? Like, if someone was to do back-to-back on a track day, what would be the, the main differences and stuff? The biggest difference between a road car and a race car is going to be the tyres. It's amazing how much a road car will, like, sort of move along on, on a road tyre, even on a wet tyre. And it's because, of course, each block on the tyre will just move a little bit, and that's why you sort of get this, like, sort of... Uh, like snaky sort of feeling where you break and the thing starts mm. wandering into a corner. Whereas you get put a slick tire on, and like if if each block moves ten millimeters and you've got ten blocks across a tire, that's going to move like a hundred millimeters, and you're going to feel that during the braking. Whereas if you just suddenly have a slick tire and you hit the brakes, you've got ten mil of movement over the whole tire. So suddenly the thing's just a lot more planted. It'll be a lot more stable. At least with a road tire, you'll get more tire squeal which is a warning that it's slipping at that yeah. point so that that's like its first cry of help that's either the front sliding or the rear starting to break grip uh and then then you'll go into like a drift or a slide or a snap whereas with a slick tire you'll have less warning you'll have more grip so you'll be able to go quicker but then you'll have less warning before you do get that snap or you do get that spin and then a race car is obviously designed for the for the track so you'll be able to go on the brakes a lot harder you'll be able to hammer the tires for longer the brakes can handle it for a lot more whereas a road car you can maybe do two laps and then your brakes are going to start overcooking and then you'll start to feel brake fade and you'll have to do like a cool down lap before you come in the pits whereas most race cars are built for going flat out coming in the pits stinking hot kind of thing brakes are glowing and then you do your fuel change and all that they can stay stationary for a few minutes but the difference between a road car and a race car is pretty incredible and the biggest difference is going to be from the slick tires and then of course the stability actually is also going to be huge just from having the downforce and stuff and probably not expecting like when you first get used to downforce or when you're not used to it you just won't push it to its limit on the high speed stuff because of course it's one of the things the quicker you go the extra grip that you generate but Obviously, that only goes to a certain point, and then mm. there's a crossover, and that crossover is going to be where there's going to be a snap or a big like wobble, or a, you're going to have to try and catch the thing. So, it's if you ever got the opportunity to have a go in a race car, or, or even if in a road car, like if if you go with an experienced driver in a road car, if you're on your first few track days and you go in a road car with an experienced driver, you'll suddenly understand of where the limits really are and it's incredible like i I've, i used to work at silverstone so of course i'd be in the passenger seat and i'd be like right go 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 yeah, yeah. go go and we get halfway down the straight and like the driver's almost like looking at me and i'm like go 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 <laughs> and i know i know we can break at 100 meters yeah. 150 meters and they're trying to break at like 500 meters they're like yeah, it should, like it's, it's quite funny actually when i used to do the experience days at silverstone if you were coaching the women sometimes 
you could get them going quicker than the guys. And it's because they listen to everything you said, yeah. whereas the guys would almost try and override. They're like, no, I know better than yeah, you. Yeah, try and override some of your, your instructions and suddenly you break a bit too late and then they've got to overslow it. And then they're not in the correct position for the corner. And so, whereas the women, like, as long as you continue to talk to them and you're like, right, break here, right, squeeze the power, full power, right, look at your exit now, open the steering and then, right, now we're going to position ourselves here for this corner. As long as you continue talking, sometimes I'll just go quicker, quicker. If you stop talking, like you're going to crash and burn kind of thing. But, uh, as, long, as long as you, you kept, kept, well, kept on giving them instructions, actually it was incredible how fast you could get them. And uh, so it's quite interesting, obviously, understanding uh, how women process and listen to things yeah. compared to how guys try and probably push our luck. And the, psycholo- the psychology of being a driver coach, that's got to be like 90% of the battle a lot of the time, dealing with people. Yeah, and, and the thing, everyone learns differently. So like the days that I do when I, when I coach is I'll go around, I'll do a handful of laps, right? This is the layout of the track because it's not in between two white lines around a track. Like we use a few cones around the circuit that I use at Bruntingthorpe. And so I'll do that and I'll just take it easy and then I'll do a lap at maybe 85%. And then I'll let them drive. And of course it'll be like very on and off the power and like it, all these movements upset the car and, and, and you can feel it from the passenger side. And every now and again, I'll have to like just top up the braking pressure if it's not hard enough. And some drivers pick up the information really quickly and like you can describe it to them and they'll do as you say. And then others will be like, right, let's just stop here. Like we can stop almost anywhere on the track. Just jump out. We'll do a quick driver change. Our driver's like, right, this is what you're doing. You're braking soft here and then you're ramping up the brake rather than having a big hammer on the brake and then bleeding off and getting the, like, the neutral balance going into the corner. And then they'll jump in and they'll mirror it. And so everyone learns differently. And this is what I found with the amount of coaching that I do, that you've got to try all these different techniques just to understand which driver benefits from each example yeah. the, the quickest. And so, and like you said, like sometimes... It's, it's trying to get bad habits or try, trying to like smoothen people's hands. Like uh, it feels quick sometimes if you're, you're fast on the wheel, but actually you're, you're creating a like a false limit and actually smoothness is always key. Like people say, oh yeah, he's an aggressive driver and you can be aggressive, but that rather than just going from straight line to suddenly like whacking on the steam, you've still got to feed it and then you can start to add more steering and that's how you get the aggressiveness, but also whilst being quick. And so it's there's lots of different ways of, driving but there's a few key points it's quite interesting how obviously a lot of gentlemen drivers have been extremely successful in business and all that and they can afford to jump straight into their ferrari gt3 or or whatever actually they'll probably learn more in something smaller learn to get to the limit in that and then you put that into the next category and you'll take it with you all the way through your your racing career and so and every now and again it's just making sure that you don't pick up any bad habits and so like i do like refresher days with some of my guys that i race with just to make sure that they're still feeding the steering wheel in like you never want any sort of movements because i suppose the easiest way to explain is if you've got two people stood up and guy a is like blindfolded if guy b just suddenly with 100 kilos of force just like slams into him he's going to fall over he's got no chance to react whereas this guy's blindfolded and this guy starts to lean against him he'll start to react and then you can still push with the same force, but it's just allowed him the opportunity to react. And it's like the race car or or the road car. You never want to just go into a corner and go surprise, like (laughs) and throw it in. You always want to feed it or you want to like, the only thing that you do aggressively is the initial brake. And then as you start to bleed off the brake, you can start to feed the steering wheel. And so it's understanding and you'll always understand and be able to process this easier in a smaller car. 
than than in a gt3 like most people in a gt3 race car they're they're concentrating that much on staying in between the white lines that if you try and talk to them in that it goes in one ear and comes straight out the other like they can just be going yeah 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 and it's like right what did i just say i don't know <laughs> whereas at least in a road car like the clears that i use they'll be able to re- relay the information back to you just because it's going slower you haven't got to slow it down as much uh it's at safer speeds but the importance is learning how how it feels and what's acceptable at the limit of of what you've got yeah because those cars are so fast that you're for most people, your mental it's yeah, just way like over e- what you even, can handle. Even like the Porsche GT3 road cars, and and that, even some of these are too. Fa- like, they're quick, yeah. Like, they're super quick, and they're on road tires, so they move a lot. And of course, at the end of the day, well, not that I ever want to crash, but I prefer to crash in something slower and uh, a slower speed <laughs> yeah. and have more chance of saving it than than in a super quick road car. And it's like if you are learning to fly a plane. Like, would you learn in a massive jumbo jet? Would you learn in a little four-seater, like, prop plane? Yeah, or, or would you jump in a fighter jet straight away? Yeah, no. yeah exactly. <laughs> so, and it's incredible how many people almost ignore that. And I don't know whether it's just like an ego thing or no, no, no. Ferrari is what I'm racing, so this is what I need to learn in. But actually, like, it's like trying to learn the butterfly is your first ever yeah. <laughs> swim. <laughs> swim, like, you just have no chance. You've got to learn to doggy paddle first and keep your head above the water. I was at Silverstone the other day. We were testing the C1. Yeah. And there was a bunch of other people testing the same day. And there were some guys in 48 Challenge cars. And I got talking to one of them and was like, oh, you know, here's your very shiny looking Challenge car. How are you, how are you doing? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm just getting into it and i was like oh have you done and i i, I you sort of spot and you go i'm just gonna ask this question and see how it pans out have you um have you done much track day driving racing yeah. anything before like you know driving a challenge car that's quite it's quite fast or he might have even been in a gt3 and he was like no not really this is my first track day <laughs> like, <"Dude." laughs> good luck like, oh, i just went to my dealership and was like oh, i'd like to do some track days and they're like yeah okay cool we can get you a gt3 race car and you yeah. can spend like 50 grand in a day and all this stuff and um, even more if you go off yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it, it's mad like uh, i do believe i totally it get should, it I, I do believe it should be regulated and even like some of these hyper cars that people end up getting like of course oh, you see wow, it on all youtube and all of that and like you see like supercar crashes and all of that and there's just reels and reels and videos like this and it's just like the thing is i believe that if you end up buying such a car you should almost have to have some kind of training yeah just to understand it and what to do and what not to do in a safe environment with a instructor around a racetrack or something because it happens too often that people are get injured and all of that and of course we have to get a race license and start off in the lower categories and build up your signatures before you can upgrade your license yeah. to go something quicker and, and why isn't it the same on the on the road like literally it's like once you get your license it's like right it is quite go, go and buy your bugatti or it your, is mind-blowing mm. what people will go and i and i totally it's that thing of you know the guy who's sold his company or is doing really well got a big paycheck and goes oh i've always wanted a ferrari so goes out and buys a 488 or something and has never driven any and Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Essentially never even driven a rear-wheel drive car before. Yeah, yeah. And they're completely fine most of the time because the traction control system's so but, smart. But you only need it to you only need that mistake one time for yeah. it to go wrong. And and it's the sad truth, like I think there should be some kind of regulation. I re- uh, I really think there should be. I It'd be I, good for us as instructors. Like, yeah. it, it, it generates <laughs> us loads of business. But actually at the same time, like honestly, I probably wouldn't teach someone in such a fast car either uh, yeah. just because no at, the, at the end of the day like it's got to be safe and of course if they suddenly believe right as an instructor your insurance and they're not going to crash that's that's not the case like we can help up to certain situations yeah. but if you do something that surprises us we can't always save every situation like as much as we can help manage and improve generally you still need to start off in i think in something smaller yeah i know i'm um, i did a day with scott mansell yeah, yeah. Um, Scott's brilliant. So, so we use pretty much the, or sim, very similar, similar layout. setup. Yeah, and one of the things that I I'd done a whole bunch of stuff before then, um, but I really like the fact that as we were driving around, so we were in an MX5, and my in terms of learning and that sort of stuff, I generally chuck my ego, try and chuck it out the window, and yeah, not yeah. go like, oh, I drive a Porsche or whatever. Why am I because like whatever? Yeah. yeah. And the, the thing the you said right? in the MX-5 yeah. and we're hooning around and then I do something like wrong. And you're like, okay, just stop here right now. We're just going to either talk about it or swap over or whatever. And that as a way of learning was so good in comparison to being, let's say at a track day or, and you've, or even on a test day or something, you go out. Even on a track day, there's too many distractions. Like there's, there's the yellow flags, the red flags, the overtaking rules and all of that. And there'll be like 40 cars on track whereas a Bruntingthorpe it's like hired semi-exclusive and there'll be no more than seven cars there and we're all doing our own thing at our own pace and all the cars are roughly the same speed yeah. so that, that's what makes it such an ideal place for, for teaching people yeah and the, the time difference between you doing something and being able to get feedback on it because even if you're if you're on a, a normal track day and the person's sitting in the car with you they can't really have an in-depth conversation and actually stop and break it down and then the time it takes to do a lap at Brondingthorpe is, is pretty quick. So you can yeah, basically yeah. work on one corner repeatedly over and over and over again. <clears throat> yeah, um, yeah. I thought that was made a huge difference. Well, yeah, for, for ramping up your, your learning curve. And it's yeah. the same with the Nürburgring. I have quite a lot of people come to me and say, right, we want you to coach us at the Nürburgring, the Norse Live. And I'm like, right, okay. Then it's like, right, how much stuff have you done? And in the end, um, I turn around and say, look, Come over to the UK. Like at one point, I think I had more German customers from the Nürburgring <laughs> than I had British and everyone else put together, yeah. kind of thing. 
And I said, look, come and do a day with me and we'll go through all the technique and stuff. But they're like, but we want to learn the Nürburgring. It's like, yeah, but we need to work on your technique first. Like the Nürburgring is very flowing, but of course you'll never do any more than 14 laps in one day. So you get 14 shots at every corner. Yeah. And if your technique's wrong, by the time we get to that corner, I'm pretty certain you'll have forgot if you're, you're fairly new to it. Whereas if we go to Bruntingthorpe, like it's, it's just under one and a half miles long. And so you, you're doing a lap in a minute and a half. So of course we'll do maybe a hundred laps or no, we'll do more than a hundred laps. We'll do like 130 laps in a day. And I wouldn't be surprised if a hundred of them, you'll, you still won't get that corner perfect. And it'll only be the odd few you'll do it, but you need that repetition to understand uh, the, and get the muscle memory to, to do it every lap. And of course, once you start going quicker around one corner, then you're going to approach the next one a little bit quicker. So then you've got to adjust your braking for that one to make sure that you don't overcook it into the next corner. And so and this is where using the small track and it's just a repetition, which is where, where you learn it from. Um, my first track that I ended up basically testing car on uh, was a place called Kyrgyzstan. And basically it's like a triangle with a chicane in it. And uh, it's in Ireland. It's the only place I could test because I didn't have a license at the time because mm. I wasn't old enough. So I ended up testing there. And basically, uh, like I said earlier, I ended up doing two days every month there. And basically it was just one track. And Dad was like, until you match the time of the quickest guy around there, there's no point going to any other circuit. It's valid. So, so that's all I did. Like The thing is, if, if you lose a second to me in a Renault Clio, you're probably going to lose four or five seconds to me in anything quicker. So until you conquer that... There's no point in moving into the next category or something mm. faster to, to learn. Yeah, that's super valid. Something that I've always wanted to do is do either a VLN race or something at the Nürburgring. Yep. Yep. The the first, obviously, you've done quite a bit of racing at the Nürburgring. You've won the, won the 24 hours? Yeah, 2016. So, yeah, the the highlight of, of my career that, that season was. So, of course, it was my first year signing with AMG. So So that was obviously huge for me. And then we went and won the biggest race on our calendar. So, of course, yeah, couldn't have asked for a better first season it's with the manufacturer. the coolest place in the world. How did you prepare for racing there? Had you raced a bunch bef- there before that? So I, I first went there in 2000 and, uh, 2011, basically. In fact, going back to, I did that day's coaching at Barcelona with, mm. a, with a Dutch guy called Klasomel. And... During the winter, I like messaged him saying, "Look, with your budget and my coaching, I think we'd make a great team um, in in the program category." And I heard nothing, and it got to like March, April, and I was like ready to hang up my helmet. This is 2011. Yeah. I'm thinking, right, that's it. I'm I'm finished. And then suddenly, I get a phone call off the team manager, and he's like, "Right," he goes, "You're doing the European Le Mans series." He goes, uh, "Class went through all the inventory and everything. I'm not paying for this. I'm not paying for this." Blah blah blah. And then right at the end, he said, "Right." I'm going to pay double because I want Adam to race with me and literally just threw me a lifeline. <laughs> and so, of course, I rang him up to say, thank you very much, right? Let's arrange some more testing. And he's like, I'm glad you rang. He goes, I'm going to Nürburgring tomorrow. He's like, get a flight over to Amsterdam and go by helicopter to the Nordschleife. <laughs> so I'm like, dad, 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 I need a flight. Like I was working for my dad at the time, not earning very much yeah. money. And so uh, he's like, I'm not paying for you to go there. I was like, no, this is what's happening. He's like, all oh, right, okay, then best do it. So, <laughs> so, so that's what I did. So I went and met him, flew across the, the Nordschleife. I did two laps, he did two laps. And then he was like, I want a word with you. And at that point I was like, oh no. I was like, I've done something wrong. I was like, shit, is that, is that downshift? I was like, oh no, this is not good kind of thing. I was like, I've broken it already. And I was like flapping. He's like, right, you're doing the races I can't do. I'm thinking, okay, what's the catch? Like, uh, 
first race i'm on family with the, the holiday uh, i'm on holiday with the family i'm on family with the holiday i'm on holiday <laughs> with the family i was like right so he goes you're doing that one i was like okay he goes uh second birthday uh se- second uh race weekend is my wife's birthday <laughs> so you're doing that one as well i was like right okay he goes third weekend is what's his graduation <laughs> you're doing that one i'm like right goes, and then there's one more race and then the nurburgring 24 hours I'm not going to learn the track in one race. He goes, you're doing that. And then you're doing the Nürburgring 24 hours. <laughs> and I was just like, what the hell? And literally he just threw me a lifeline guy. That's thing. amazing. And, and as I got to know class more and more, I realized that he got a lot more pleasure and satisfaction out of seeing other people enjoying themselves. Like he's extremely successful as, hmm. uh, at what he does. Uh, he's made his fortune and we, we went racing together. And then basically he sponsored me to, to do some of this That's racing awesome. at, the Nür- at the Nürburgring. So uh, that was 2011. We had a few wins in the VLN in in our category, uh, like the first few laps that I did. I remember I came in the pits and I was like, how was that? And uh, the guy was like, yeah, it was okay. And I was like, what lap time did I do? And they're like, don't worry about it. I was like, no, no, tell me the lap time. They're like, 12 minutes. I was like, right, okay. Was, it's a 25 kilometer lap. And I'm like, right, okay. So I was like, so what's a good lap time? They're like, nine minutes. And I was like, <laughs> what? I was like, three minutes off the pace. I was like, is that even possible? <laughs> So anyways, so of course, next lap, suddenly I'm pushing a bit harder. I'm like, obviously hanging on to this thing, thinking, oh my God, like, as a kid, I used to play on Grand Tours, man. I swear I picked it up a bit quicker than some of my teammates yeah. at the time. Uh, even though I only found out it was going the day before, I remembered certain parts from Grand Tours. And there's yeah. two sections of the track, which I, I can't tell you which two parts now. At the time, I thought it looked very similar, except one went into like a fast left and one went into oh, a slow right. left. And I couldn't <laughs> remember, what, like, I, I still can't think in my head which two parts of the track. I, I was getting confused when I first went there anyway. By the end of the day, I'd got down to like a... The next lap, I'd taken a whole minute off my time. Then I took like 40 seconds, then 25 seconds, and just chipped away the whole day. I did all of nine laps. And I got down to a 9.14. So at the end of the day, I was like, so go on then, what, what, what is the fastest time? They were like, well, actually, it's a 9.10 in this category. Oh, I'm going to smash that tomorrow. Anyway, the next day we get there, and there's like three times the amount of cars... Right, the first day there was only 50 cars. Yeah. The second day there was 150 cars. I'm like, there's traffic. Okay, Adam. There's traffic. Okay, Adam. There's traffic. Adam, there's always traffic. You don't need to tell us. I'm like, oh. okay. Then like with the German accents, I was like, okay, sorry. So uh, so anyway, so and I couldn't get within 10 seconds of the previous day. Yeah. So I was like, oh man, anyway, it took me until like my third race and I eventually smashed it and I managed to get down to an 8.55 and that lap record held for quite a few years. Nice. And so 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 that was, that was brilliant. So we ended up doing that and... And then I got given the opportunity to do this, the Nürburgring 24 hours the year after with Pro Sport. And then I went back with the original team the year after. And I just managed to keep the ball rolling. And then I eventually put a deal together with Black Falcon. Um, again, thanks to the, the helper class that uh, the second year there, someone kept on asking him, come and do the race, come and do the race. He's like, I won't do it, I won't do it. But he goes, I know a driver that will. And so he goes to me, he's like, right, Adam, he goes, you want to do this race i was like yeah i'd love to and, they, and he turns around he goes right the team wants x amount i was like oh i was like, i haven't got that money don't worry he's like no no he goes look he goes i'll give you some money towards it i'm like right i was like well you don't have to he's like no no he goes this is what we'll do so he goes but you have to see how you can generate the rest or whatever so i spoke to the team anyway i eventually went back to him and i was like class look i was like i managed to save you some money. I was like, what do you mean? I was like, and he goes, well, look, I've managed to negotiate it down to this price. <laughs> he's like, all oh, right, wow. And so, was like, but, but they want half of it in cash. And he was like, okay, no problem. <laughs> so was like, in, in my head, I was expecting to receive like a briefcase full, oh, of, cash. full of cash to pay yeah, yeah. to pay for this thing. 
because like in Europe you get 500 euro notes yeah, yeah. so anyway so next thing I know like that evening he's like here you go here's your money and he gives it me in this envelope so like put it in my pocket <laughs> as if like it's normal I'm like right okay then like just got a few grand in my pocket kind of thing and I remember going back to the bedroom like spreading it all over the bed I was like oh my god look at all this money kind of thing <laughs> like took a, a photo or two sent it to my cousin I was like look at all this yeah. cash and like, for the gram yeah yeah, yeah right so, <laughs> so like I was like right. they're like what the hell where's this from so so anyway, I went there, did the race, and we knew we had a quick car. This is 2012. We knew we had a quick car. Um, and it's the Porsche GT4, but this was the old, this was one of the, it was like a cup car, so it got the sequential, but it got okay. a small wing on it, extra weight, and a small restrictor on it. And so we knew it was in a strong position. So we were like, well, let's not go too quick. And so we decided, because, of course, going back to the BOP thing, we are like, well, if we get to this bridge before this time, we'll slow down for the last sector so we don't, yeah. Set off too many alarm bells, kind of thing. Anyway, three of us all do our lap, and then the one driver goes out. He goes and smashes us all the way by like fifteen <laughs> seconds. We're like, "What you do that for?" You do. He's like, "You set the bridge." We're like, "Yeah, the bridge." And he's like, "This bridge." And we're like, "No, the, the one before." And so, like, oh. so anyway, so we were panicking. We were like far too quick at this point. Thankfully, one of the Janettas eventually got close enough and ended up just pipping us, and we ended up second. So we're like, "Okay, that's fine. At least we're like under the radar." Yeah. kind of thing. So anyway, so in the race, I'm in the car and it's looking good. We're in the lead and we're probably like four hours into the race. And I feel this little vibration. Don't think anything of it. Just, oh, it's a bit of pickup or something. Next thing I know, the front left tire just goes, right, massive blowout kind of thing. And the, and the driver's door right next to me just goes, gone. <laughs> I'm like, like, literally, I'm hanging on to this thing. Like, oh my God. And I'm like looking at the barriers. I'm veering towards it. This is on the Dottinger hose. So I'm like doing, I don't know. 250 kilometers an hour at this point i'm like oh my god anyway i got on the power and it like picked the front up and it went back in a straight line so eventually slowed down came straight in the pits so it came in the pits and they're like oh no so they took the wheel off realized that the part of the tire had gone through the radiator so that to replace the radiator we lost like five laps it cost us 55 minutes in the pits chris esser from pro sport comes up to me he goes the other drivers don't want to do it but uh do you want to go and do a lap we don't have a spare door and I was like, what? And I was like, well, we've got a window net. And they're like, yeah. So they put the window net in. <laughs> so anyway, so I did like my first lap on the Grand Prix circuit, came back in, they topped up the water. And they're like, how was it? I was like, we need some holes in the rear window. So like straight with the big circulars, like saw drill, like straight through the rear window, like the plexiglassing, because like the window was like, oh, a yeah, wobble, yeah, yeah. like buffering really bad. So anyway, so we ended up doing that. I did one lap on the Grand Prix and like, of course, I'm like, go now. And like, I just had the urge. Everyone that I went past, because it's on the driver's side, I just wanted to go, hello. I just stick my hand out, like, just like, wave at people. I was like, no, 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 just don't like, do that. Yeah, don't do that. Just like, stay in the cover. Like, don't, don't draw attention to yourself. What I didn't realize is like, the helicopter was following us for like three laps. Look at this guy. Like, you can see my elbow, like, out the side of the door kind of thing. Because he's got no door. Like, you wouldn't be allowed to do it now. Yeah. But, uh, but back then, things were a little uh, more relaxed. So, I did the first lap and Chris was like, how was it? I was like, yeah, it's okay. Except going over the jumps, the car would always twist because obviously oh, there was like yeah. a load of drag or something on the one side. So I just had to be a bit careful. It's like a rally car. Kind of. Anyway, so uh, I do the first lap and he was like, how is it? I was like, yeah, it seems okay. And they're like, good. We'll see you in eight laps then. So I ended up doing a whole stint without a door kind of thing. Anyway, we eventually came in the pits. They had a spare door off another car. So they put that on. So like, obviously they just stuck the number on the door and off we went kind of thing. Anyway, we ended up from like, uh, I think five laps down or six laps down. We ended up finishing like a lap and a half down or something. Nice. And we finished third in, in <laughs> class and we only beat fourth place by like two minutes. And so like, okay, sounds like a long time, but two minutes around the Norse life yeah. is like not even not a fifth a, yeah. of the lap kind of thing. 
So, of course, we finished third and like celebrating. Everything's going great kind of thing. Next thing we know, the team owner gets a phone call. You, rah, 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 like, you've been using my car for the 24 hours. How can you? I'm going to sue you. And the guy's like losing, like losing his mind down the phone. Chris is like, what do you want about it? This is my car. And he's like, no, no. He goes, look, there's my stickers on the car. And he's like, oh, no. He goes, that's just your door. Goes, we had to go back to the workshop and take a door off one of the other cars, basically. Like... Yeah, we we ended up borrowing his door off his uh, off his race his car, car and yeah. just putting it onto ours, just so we had a door for the remainder of the race. <laughs> um, and then and then Chris got another phone call, like, "Oh, we have something of yours." And like, it's like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "We've got your door." He's like, "What do you?" He's like, "Have you got my number?" And basically, because it was a brand new team to me, I didn't know any of the team. One thing I've always been taught for the Nurburgring was to take your phone with you. So I took my phone and I sellotaped his telephone number onto the door and literally just stuck it onto the door. So at the end of the race, after the race had finished, one of the marshals rang him, hey, we've got your door. So like, literally we sent one of the mechanics and he got to the door and like, it's like, how do I carry a door and a, like, on a moped? So basically <laughs> they, uh, they got a roll of tank tape, like wrapped it around him and the door. So he was like a Ninja Turtle coming back with this like door strapped to his back. So, so this is 2012 and in the end I ended up racing with the Pro Sport Boys in their Porsche for quite a few years. We ended up doing the European Championship, which we won as a team in, in 2012, I think. No, 2013 that was. And then it got to 2014. So I did three years in GT4 there because that was the only opportunity I'd been mm. given at the time. But I knew the track inside out. And uh, we, we missed one race at the end of the previous season and class the the guy that i was racing with the dutch guy he was like look he's like uh, the team got some money he goes you can do he goes that's the money for you to use towards whatever you want basically again just threw me another lifeline he's like you can either leave leave it with the team or you can take it out give it to another team or you can take it out and invest it into something uh, wow. and i was nice. like right wow okay then so i didn't like negotiated with the team i had one vln test day one vln race and the Nürburgring 24 hours back in 2014. So we did the test day and I was like six seconds off the pace and I couldn't compute that someone was quicker than me. Yeah, because I'd, yeah. I'd got the lap record in like three or four different categories at this time, but they're all the smaller categories. Suddenly, of course, I was in the top category at the Nürburgring and I just wasn't used to the extra downforce. Again, going back to, even though I'd raced GT3s for some time, I'd just never raced the GT3 around the green hell, yeah. the Nordschleife kind of thing. And of course, some of the high-speed corners, you're cornering at like 230, 240 kilometers an hour. And like you're having a little breather kind of thing and, and you're hanging on kind of thing. So so that was the first test day. And then we got to the first race weekend and me and Andreas exited the pits at the same time. I was like, right, if I can just hang on to him. So anyway, so by the end of the first lap, because it was like a one lap like qualifying, the first lap was always the clearest. So did the first lap and then I ended up three seconds off him. I was like, okay, well, that's better than obviously last time hmm. where it was six seconds. I was like, great. So I started the race, someone else started in that car. And during the race, I, f- I got straight into second off the start. And I found myself like fighting for the lead. And I remember coming in the pits like shaking because I was like, oh my God, what just happened? So like, I ended up coming in like buzzing. This was the race before the 24 hours. Uh, every- everything's going great. The The race ended up being red flagged just as we'd pitted, unfortunately. So we ended up finishing fifth in that race. But our, our sister car uh, that we were fighting with ended up winning. And then it was the 24 hours, the- like a few weeks after. So we got there and... Of course, I'm still an unknown to a lot of people. This is, I've only done one GT3 mm. race. So we get there and uh, it comes to the Super Pole and there's 30 cars and I go out and end up qualifying fourth and everyone's like, who the hell is this Chris to do? <laughs> and I, of course, I'm absolutely loving it and buzzing because I qualified fourth, top Mercedes, top Brit, uh, just buzzing. 
So so that's all good. And everyone's like, who the hell's this Chris Dutrieu? If he can do that time, what, what time would Bernd Schneider have done? And they're like, well, and like, fair enough to Bernie. He turned around and he goes, well, he did the qualifying because he was quicker than me. And so I was like, wow, like to hear that from someone of uh, yeah. Bernd's status is is incredible. So, so that was brilliant. Uh, and then during the race, uh, we were running fourth and unfortunately... We, I know that was the year after. So that race we didn't finish. The year after, I remember Sean Paul or during that race after our car was out of the race. He's like, oh, he goes, you should have been in the number one car. And so the year after, I ended with the contract for the number one nice. car. And so, uh, so that was like my official, like first professional, like driveway. I didn't have to bring any sponsorship yeah. or anything, and and I actually made a small salary from it so of course i was buzzing kind of thing so ended up doing that race and unfortunately the wheel fell off and i ran around like a maniac trying to like fit this wheel back on the car and it took me two hours to get back after uh eventually managed to get some tools and stuff and uh and then the year after it was 2016 and i signed with amg and and we won and so like it's just one of these it just snowballed in the right direction yeah. thankfully and I, I believe i've been in the right place at the right time for many things and I surrounded myself by around with the correct people and and they've helped support me along the way and and it's been pretty awesome and and now i'm just getting busier and busier and like if i could i'd race almost every weekend kind of thing so uh, at the end of the day that's as a driver that's all we want to do and so to earn a living from it, it's just like a, a bonus that's pretty awesome how often are you racing at the moment like what sort of intervals <laughs> so this season I, I think i've raced myself 21 weekends this season Okay, that's um, quite a lot. And so it's it's been super busy because, of course, generally around January, February, not much happens. And it's the same for like November and December. Yeah. But the season seems to be getting longer and longer, which is great. Like, I'm I'm happy for it to be. Like, Dubai is always a great season opener at the start of the season. That's like the second or third weekend of January. Mm. And there's Bathurst. Uh, I've been lucky to have gone there the last few years. I haven't raced every year, but I've been there as driver coach and doing strategy for one of the teams. I raced there a few years ago. So that that's that was awesome as well. And then... The European season starts testing around like February, March kind of thing. Some of the warmer places within Europe. But also at the same time, like last winter, I, I did a lot of coaching out in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And so that kept, kept me busy through that that part of the season as well. And of course, I, I must have spent like seven or eight weeks over there over four months. Hmm. And so, in fact, I just came back from Dubai uh, last week uh, on the way back from China. I thought, well, not much is happening in the UK <laughs> this week. So, so yeah. I uh, spent it in the... In the warmer conditions with, with Lydia and a few friends, uh, it was her birthday. So we went over there and uh, I've left her over there because now on, on Thursday I, I go back to the Nürburgring and then after that I go to China. So And so she's she's enjoying the decent yeah. weather and whilst I'm still gallivanting. Pretty hectic timing schedule. Do you find it difficult to sort of, I don't know, like stay fit and just generally deal with all the travel? sometimes so actually i think i'm fitter this year than i have been the last two or three years and so d during the winter i don't know why but i decided i wanted to start working on my uh my legs yeah. i was fed up of them looking like chicken legs <laughs> and so <laughs> so i've been like ramping up all my weights and all of that and i, and I suppose like i've always been intrigued with data whether it's for racing or whatever yeah. so like i jot absolutely everything down mm. with all my training and stuff now and like i've increased all my uh weights that i'm doing by like 50 percent compared to what i started at yeah. uh, like half a year ago kind of thing and so and this this is just for my legs kind of thing they don't seem to be looking any bigger but they're definitely stronger than what they used to be and then i just try and train when, when i can so thankfully like uh, i'm a pretty good sleeper so when i get on the flights i can generally just switch off yeah. and fall asleep straight away 
And then when I'm back, like uh, I landed in China, I think it was nine o'clock the other week. And of course, there's a seven hour difference to the UK. So I landed and got to the hotel at like 11.30 and I just wasn't ready for bed. So that's that stuff. So I went and spent an hour in the gym there. Just I thought, well, I may as well. Uh, we didn't have to get up early the next morning for testing. So I just went and did a quick training session. And uh, one thing I do enjoy actually is uh, we seem to do it a lot in China where after the day's testing, there'll be a handful of us that will go and run around the track. Oh, okay. like, generally, the weather is 20 degrees plus. Yeah. So it's very pleasant. It's quite humid, but it's just nice to like, I suppose we all sort of egg each other on to at least run around the track and at least do some fitness yeah. because otherwise it's easy to sit down. And it's like, Oh, we'll go for dinner. And then before you know it, like uh, I am pretty conscious of the condition that I want to be in. And I realized that a few years ago, suddenly I was like looking down thinking, <laughs> Oh man, I'm 30 now. Where's that tummy come from? Like, uh, <laughs> that's not right. It like just suddenly appeared overnight. So, uh, so I've started doing quite a bit more running and cycling recently, but it's, obviously it's just sunny. The, the conditions have got a lot uh, colder in the UK, so I think we're going to be in the gym quite a bit more. Over do, the you need, do you need to be quite fit to drive a GT3 car, or is it you're, more beneficial? It's, it's definitely more beneficial if you're fitter. So, like, as I said earlier, like we can be in the cars for up to three hours, and so yeah. because of that, you've just got to be got to be mentally prepared, but also physically you need to be uh, prepared for that like during the 24 hours we can be in the car for i think the maximum you can do is like 11 or 12 hours and if one of your teammates isn't feeling well or or something happens you've got to be ready to be able to get in the car get in the car kind of thing and so it definitely helps so like during a race weekend or especially during a 24 hours like you'll know that you'll have at least two hours off so i generally get out like quick wash kind of thing and then i just go and eat and during a 24 hours i reckon i must have six or seven meals during the race like yeah. every time i come in after a stint i just eat and then you try and rehydrate like you can drink like two two liters and you still won't need the toilet for yeah. the next two hours because the amount that you sweat it's, it's incredible like you can lose like three four kilos in a two-hour wow. stint depending on how warm it is we, we have some of the teams supply the physios and that and they'll weigh you before you get in the car just like in your underwear and then they'll weigh you after you get out of the car like the way the difference of your suit and your suits suddenly like three kilos heavy, oh, wow. just like sweated into the thing. So it is important to to make sure you're on top form. But at the same time, like obviously some of these gentlemen drivers and businessmen aren't able to to do that. But uh, I suppose that's why we have to be on the top of our game to make sure that we're doing our part to to, to help them guys as much as possible. When you're racing with a, an AM driver or with a gentleman driver, I guess getting them fast is way more important than most of the pro drivers are probably sit very similar lap times. Yes. Yeah. So like all, all pro drivers are going to be within three, four times. Yeah. And then obviously there'll be little differences between the cars. Whereas like what I've started doing, especially like when I'm in China and that like, we'll get, we'll get like five sets of tires for the weekend. So before qualifying, I'll try and give my teammate maybe two of them. Hmm. And then he'll do like a qualifying, he'll simulate a qualifying session and then, We'll maybe pit him like a lap early. So we'll give him like three, four laps. Then we'll come in and then I'll go out and I'll get to try and push as well. And I'll get a tire that's, okay, it's not brand new, but I get a good idea yeah. of roughly where it's going to be because a tire is always, it's quickest when it's brand spanking new kind of thing. That's when it's got the fresh rubber. You get that little bit of extra twist out of the tire so you can get it rotated. You can be harder on the power. And so, of course, you don't want to go into qualifying with a complete surprise. So I try and give Eric all the tires because the thing is I might find 
like two, three attempts. But if I give him two sets of tyres and then he goes into qualifying and then he just goes bang a second quicker, yeah. that's a that's lot a more difference. of a bigger advantage for, for us as a pairing than me finding that extra two attempts. How does the grid work for the races and stuff like that in so, terms of qualifying? Depending on what championship. So like in Blanc Pan, it's a combination of all three drivers. Yeah. So again, like if I was doing that in a program category, I'd give the M drivers as many new sets of tyres as possible or like within our budget so that because I'll find X amount on the tyre, but if I can get them to find more. It's worth more. It, yeah. It's worth more over the average of the, of the three drivers. So they do an average? So you're qualifying so for, for Blanc Pan? For Blanc Pan endurance it is, except the Spa 24 hours where everyone goes out and qualifying and then it's the top 20 have they designate one driver to go and do a yeah. super pole lap. So that's just an extra shootout. Uh, in British, normally if it's a two race weekend, the M driver goes out first, sets his qualifying time. So that's for race one. And then the pro goes out in the second qualifying and sets his lap time for race two. So that that's the two races. If it's a two or three hour race where that's all there is in the weekend, then it's combined qualifying for, for yeah. British. In China, qualifying one is the pro drivers and that's for race one. But the, pro doesn't have to start race one this is where it starts to get confusing like each championship's got its own rules and there's no right or wrong way about doing it it's just different rules and everyone has to manage the best situation from from those rules the, the rules that they've been given to try and beat everyone else gt open i think qualifying one driver does race one start qualifying two driver does race two start so it, it just depends but at the end of the day you, you want to be in the best position like if you go for a championship, you want the best average, obviously, out of yeah. everyone. So you, you've got to do with what, whatever you believe is going to give you the biggest advantage. Generally, when you when you start the race, your tyres are going to be fresh. So you never want to burn the tyres all the way to the very end of their life because it's unrealistic that in a lot of championships, you're only doing a 30-minute stint and you're not going to need the tyres at the end of their life. You're only going to need it for yeah. half an hour stint. So that's where like, it could be a different qualifying setup to a race setup qualifying you might want it a bit more racy but it'll burn the tires off faster so then for the race you might like have it a, a little bit more conservative but in the end over the average it's going to be better towards the end of the stint so th- there's a thousand and one things you can change and at the end you're trying to get your best qualifying position and then obviously figure out the best way to get to the checkered flag first <laughs> out of everyone else uh, are you racing flat out the entire time it depends on what kind of race. So like the Nürburgring, yes, you've got to because there's no safety cars. There's only slow zones. Right. So you've got to go flat out on every corner, every straight and get whatever advantage you can, whether it's through the traffic or whatever, because there's no safety car. So you don't have to worry about it bunching everyone back up. Right. And of course, with it being 25 kilometers, let's say you get an advantage and you get onto the North Life and then suddenly the heavens open and the other guy's are able to pit like your next lap if it's wet and you're on slicks you could lose four or five minutes yeah and if they're only two minutes behind which sounds like a massive advantage that's like a lap advantage around every any other normal track you can lose that within a lap kind of thing if you're unfortunate with, yeah. with how that falls so you've got to race flat out all the time and you've got to try and take advantage if there's some huge slow zones and you know they're getting towards the end of being cleared if you can pit during that slow zone whilst the slow zone's on the track and then get out and thankfully if it's gone then that's a massive advantage for you so so you've got to go flat out there spa is pretty flat out as well but of course the safety cars the, the thing with spa is there's two safety cars yeah so you've got to make sure that you're in the correct chain like train with the leader 
if if you're if you're fighting or well, whether you're in that, your category or going for the outright to win at Daytona for like the Daytona 24 hours if it used to be whoever was on the lead lap for like the last hour had a chance of winning because every time there's a safety car at Daytona it's a minimum of four laps so you can unlap yourself on the first lap like they get everyone to queue up and then like lap two is prototypes all come in lap three are gts come in so when the prototypes come in if you're at the front of the gts and all the gts come in and you're a lap down you're allowed to unlap yourself and catch them oh up. nice and then lap four of the safety car is, is something along those lines lap four is anyone that's a lap down is allowed so you can actually unlap yourself twice wow. during a safety car uh, in america <laughs> just with how daytona falls but unfortunately that caught us out a little bit maybe two years ago because normally like daytona there's always a safety car in the last hour and of course that bunches everyone up yeah you get back on the lead lap and then you fight to the death kind of thing whereas the other year we decided to go for the 18 hour mark like if you're leading during the 18 hours you get full points at uh, 18 hours so that goes towards your championship okay so we went for that. Everyone pitted at the safety car like 20 minutes before and we were like, stuff it, we'll go for the points. Yeah. There's six hours to go. There's going to be another safety car. And unfortunately there wasn't. Oh, no. And so in the end, we ended up finishing fourth. And so, of course, the thing is, we'd have just never predicted that because in previous years, there's always like 20 safety cars and that's it. that year, there was only four. Yeah. And so so that, that caught us out, unfortunately. So I suppose that's becoming more of a race where you've just got to go flat out and you've got to go with the strategy rather than getting the points for the championship. In the end, uh, the team won the endurance championship, the IMSA endurance championship the last two years in a row. So those points are extremely valuable to them. But uh, unfortunately, it sort of hindered us winning that race, which I was only doing that race. So of course, for me, I'd prefer yeah, to have won the race. Win. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so... Uh, it depends on the 24 hours now, but the cars are built strong enough that you can go flat out. You yeah. just got to be a little careful with curves. And obviously you never want contact because the thing is like you spend hours and hours or the team spends hours and hours like perfecting the setup of these cars, making sure the thing's perfectly balanced. And then if you go and launch over a massive curb or you have contact with someone yeah. and you knock the front toe out or, or get a puncher or something, then suddenly your chances of succeeding or being successful in that race are very slim. Yeah. So and and it happens in a lot of twenty four hours. Like, for example, last year and the previous year at the Nurburgring, it's almost anyone that was in the lead. And like we we were leading the Nurburgring twenty four hours this this year at two thousand nineteen. I jumped in the car uh, and I was like halfway through my stint and I didn't have any intention. But I saw the car in front of me heading towards turn one on on the Grand Prix circuit. And I was like, right, it's miles ahead. I'll overtake him on the exit of the first two corners. And he just overslowed it a hell of a lot more than I realised. And then he sort of like pulled to the, the left a little bit. And I was like, oh, he's seen me, he's letting me go. So I went to go down his inside. Next thing I know, he's coming oh. back across. And and we had contact and he cracked the front steering rack and that put us out of the race. And like, for me, I was like devastated. Like, I was more upset that I, I felt like I'd let everyone down yeah, yeah. kind of thing. And, and we were leading that race. And in the end, I think if we'd continued looking at how the race unfolded, we should have won that thing. But of course, it's one of the things could have, would have, should have. Um, like we won it in 2016. Last year, we had a chance of winning as well. And it got red flag. We had like a two minute advantage. We, the Porsche was quicker than us last year. We had a two minute advantage. And then it got red flagged and it neutralized the race. Uh, the only reason we had the advantage is because the Porsche had ended up getting like a three or four minute penalty 
for speeding during some of the slow mm. zones, which just, which you're not meant to do. Obviously, you're meant to stick to 60 or 120 kilometers, depending on how severe the slow zone is. And then they were taking advantage of that and, and they got caught out. So they ended up with a big penalty, which handed us the lead. And then suddenly at the restart, it was a one-hour sprint and uh, it was just too strong for us in in the super wet conditions, I suppose. Again, like just having the engine over the back wheels was... Yeah. At that time of the race, when it was like everyone was aquaplaning, paid its dividends. How so. on earth do you deal with those conditions? Like I've seen yeah, watching it, and it's just torrential downpour sometimes. Yeah, it's it's tough. So I washed. If it's just wet or if it's just dry, it's fine. It's once you get to the aquaplaning stage, which is where I suppose drivers. It get, then it becomes risk versus reward kind of thing. And uh, we had a, a similar race like that the, the other week in China where it just started raining heavier and heavier. But at this point, we were in second. We were catching up the leader. Mm. And I was like, come on, come on, keep going, keep going. And I was just thinking, I just need this race to last another two laps kind of thing. Because I was thinking in two laps, I reckon I'd be, okay, be able to get yeah. ahead of him. But then you've also got a lead for a whole complete lap as well. Because on the regulations, they go like back a whole lap. So, of course, if you've done a lap and 99%, oh. if they go back a whole lap, the other car could still be ahead of you. So, anyway, literally just as I got within a second of the car after closing the gap down from like 10, 15 seconds, uh, the red flag dropped and uh, and that they they decided to, to end the race at that point, which, which was a bit of a shame. But, uh, <laughs> of course, it, it's one of them things like at the time, all I was thinking was, I just need to catch that car up, just need to catch that car up. And even though we were aquaplaning, I th- in fact, I posted that video on YouTube. Um, hanging on in, uh, in the wet conditions. Yeah, check out Chris's YouTube channel. Adam, sorry, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't worry. So, the, like, people call me Chris all the time. I just answer to it now. Like, yeah. I, I'm used to it. Chris, Christo, Adam. Like, I, I accept them all. So, uh, yeah. So, my YouTube. I, I was having a look on your YouTube channel, and you had one of the ones I was checking out. You were talking through a wet lap around some, Shanghai. Shanghai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which it's really interesting. If you've never watched someone do a wet lap... Was this where I was talking, you were talking during... So I had the mic in my helmet, did I? I don't know whether... Or yeah, I was thought, I doing commentary on top? It, it sort of sounded like it was in your helmet. Yeah, okay, yeah. So so I've done two videos. So I've done one where I'm... Basically, I'm driving whilst uh, I've got a mic in my helmet and that's connected through the radio system. So doing a tour around the track while still like, hustling it. And then, and then I do one lap, I think, where I'm not talking so I can actually do a correct lap because... Even though I thought I was quite good at talking on the radio, I was quite surprised that it slowed me down by about a second. <laughs> like when I was able to just fully focus, I went about yeah. a second quicker in, the, in those conditions. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and then I, I also posted one from my last race. Uh, this is a longer video. It's about 20 minutes long. And I'm like commentating over the video just of some of the thought processes mm. of during whilst it's raining. And you can hear the wheel spinning. You can see me like hacking at the wheel as well, just trying to keep it in a straight line at like 190 kilometers an hour. And the thing's just trying to turn because it's just mm. aquaplaning at this point. But yeah, YouTube's a little new to me and I'm just trying to... How are you finding it? Slow progress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like anything, like even it doesn't matter what you're doing, like the start's always, I suppose, going to be the hardest. Like hopefully the more content I can I can push out there then the more times or the more chance of it being found and stuff. And I think it's a little unique how I'm doing the commentary whilst I'm driving. I, yeah. I think that's a little different. So I'm explaining, I suppose, the thought process whilst I'm going around, where I'm looking at, where I want to apex, uh, what kind of corner it is. I've been quite lucky that in China, they're, they're quite loose with the regulations, whereas like in the UK and Europe, you're not 
meant to have helmet uh, cameras on your helmet or anything. So, yeah. so I've been doing that, and uh, I've got a few like my race starts on there. Like there's there's a great one from Ningbo where it's a little bit of like rubbing and bumping kind of thing. People putting their elbows out, and and it's it's a pretty awesome. It's about two three minutes long, uh, just at the first two laps of this awesome little circuit in China <laughs> where. Uh, and I've got my onboard uh, helmet on, so you can actually see like the point of view where where yeah. I'm I'm looking. When people, when the first time I saw a an onboard that was attached to someone's helmet, it looked so much better than mounted to a car. Oh yeah, it does. Like, like with me, so like Ningbo is probably the best example for mine. Where like this little track is, you almost feel like it'd be better in like a world in a world touring car. It'd yeah. be brilliant because you got to munch the curbs and our GT3 cars aren't built for that. Like we hit the curbs and you hear it go, yeah. and like it sounds horrible. Whereas you need, you almost need like a rally car or a Dakar car where you can literally just go <laughs> vroom, vroom, like over these curbs and yeah, not yeah. feel them. Like it's a proper chassis bender, but <laughs> but it's an awesome little circuit. It like reminded me of like an oversized go kart mm. track. But the start because it is so tight and twisty. In that race, I started sixth, and by the end of the first lap, I was in third, and I managed to get into second, and then I was chasing down the BMW. But of course, whilst fighting, of course, I try going around the outside of the one corner, and I just can't get the thing turned because. I've had to break a little later because I'm going for a, a further distance around the outside. And I just understood. And then the next side comes back to me. And then thankfully I've got the next corner. And of course you see me looking in the mirror because as I turn my head, yeah. uh, you, you just pick up the mirror and you can see him like trying to figure out where he's going to try and dive bomb me. And so, uh, so that, that's one of my favorite uh, videos. In fact, that was one of my first. And then I was lucky enough that I got to do a video with me as well. Uh, oh, in yeah, fact, that, was one, that, was, video. that was one of my first. So that was nice to, to be able to, I felt a bit guided at that. Like, <laughs> he he basically did all the talking, so, so it made my job easy. So that that was you did a um, that was, was in the AMG, word. yeah, in the AMG A45 with drift mode on. Yeah, I felt under pressure a little bit because AMG are like, right, we want you to drift all the way up Goodwood, and I was like, right, okay. Any of you guys been to Goodwood before? And they're like, and this is like talking to the guy that's developed yeah. the drift mode. It's like, no. I was like, right, okay. I was like, you seen a lap up there? So I showed them. They're like, oh, it's quite narrow. I was like yeah, you're telling me and there's a wall there as well. <laughs> yeah. They're like, hmm, this might be difficult. So I was in Germany and we set out a cone course. And I tried to, I was like, right, it's going to be roughly second, third gear. So I set out this cone course. I kept wiping the cones out. I was like, oh, man. Like, like I've spent all my life trying to keep a car as straight as yeah, possible, yeah, yeah. as fast as possible. So drifting to me is a little bit of uh, an unknown kind of yeah. thing. And so, so I try it a few times and I keep on wiping these cones out. And we're in this car park at Hockenheim and then, I was like, look, I'm doing something wrong. Can you show me how it's done? Because I'd been in the car with him and he was just drifting it. Yeah, legit, like yeah. literally we were just like gliding across the tarmac and I was like, wow, right. Okay. So anyway, so he does it and he like wipes it out once for all the cones. So I was like, okay. Wipes out the second time. He goes, no, it's impossible. And I was like, oh dear. <laughs> like <laughs> like how, how I'm going to do this at Goodwood. So anyway, so uh, I did my first run at Goodwood. And I got to turn one and I just wasn't going quick enough. And I turned and it just turned. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, like in, in my head, I was like, it's going to be turn one, turn two. These are going to be the most. Those are the money shots. Yeah, yeah, they're the money shots. So anyway, so the first time that happened, I was like, okay, that was a disaster. Right. Second shot, I went and I turned and it just turned far too sharp. And I ended up like going across the grass. I was like, oh no. And then they're like, right, so you're taking uh, Shmi up next. I was like, oh, great. So, of course, I got there and I just went in quicker and I just lobbed it in. And I don't know how, but I think a bit of fluke. I just got on the power and had the thing sideways and yeah, I just clipped, clipped the grass, a little puff of smoke and, and then sent it into the next one and run the inside grass. And, of course, I came out and I finished. And, like, I was shaking. It was like <laughs> going back to the Nürburgring. I was shaking and I was like, 
Wow, that was really out of my comfort zone. <laughs> but but thankfully, Tim loved it and so did everyone else. Yeah, so, was cool. so, so, so that worked out really well. And then I've been lucky enough to, to meet uh, Aziz and uh, Rockner and, and he sort of helped teach me how to edit. And so I've been playing with that the last few weeks. And, uh, I saw you had a drive in a, was it a Superformance GT40? Yes. Around Silverstone? That, that was brilliant, like uh, a real childhood dream come true kind of thing like on Gran Turismo that was the car <laughs> I always wanted to try and afford as yeah, soon as yeah. I could kind of thing and, and yeah and so being let loose in one of them was was pretty awesome that 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 was that was uh that was really cool so that was supplied by uh, Le Mans Classics and yeah just the experience like just understanding like the gearbox obviously even though it was a right-hand drive car the the gearbox was on the right hand side as oh, well yeah, which, that's which, like old which school, is yeah. which is unusual as well and of course first gear was towards me Okay, yeah. And then it was second, <laughs> third, fourth. And, and so, like, even that took a little bit of time to get in my head. The third gear was a little crunchy, which was a bit embarrassing on the video. But I found out later on, uh, Ollie said, he goes, oh, we found a fault uh, with one of the dogs uh, yeah. in, in the gearbox. And so that's why it was crunchy. Well, that's my excuse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it, it wasn't me, obviously. It was the car. So uh, but anyway, like, the noise of that just blew me away. Like, uh, they... they I rang up the week before and I was like, what's the noise limit of Silverstone during the BRDC track day? They're like, it's, I can't remember what they 105 said. or something. Yeah, like 105. And I rang on it. I was like, so what's the noise limit of the car? And it was like, uh, 112. I was like, oh, shoot. I was like, we've got no chance of being able to like drive this. So like basically went out of the pits in the first lap, I just took it steady because I thought yeah. if I just get one I lap, want to get one in. <laughs> I want to get one lap before I get black flagged kind of thing. So uh like, surprisingly, we didn't get noise tested before. If we were noise tested before, it would have been out. So anyway, so we did that. And then suddenly, like, after the start line, I just opened it up. And, like, he was like, yeah, just redline it all the way. <laughs> like, shouting at me kind of thing. And, again, that that was just unreal. Like, the noise and the grunt that this thing had. Of course, it's on the old school wheels with, like, the hexagon shape yeah, yeah. kind of thing. And the thing just twisted around <laughs> all the corners. And, like, it was so much fun. It was so physical as well, like... Like it's, he was like, well, this is how they used to race them, like no power steering or anything. And it's like, wow, like if you had to race something like that around Spa, your arms would fall off. Mm. Okay, Le Mans, I think, would be a bit easier because at least you get them all saying straight right. to like take a break kind of thing. But any of the other tracks, I think, like that's, that's when men were men. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I've, I've been to quite a few of the Peter Auto events where people are racing like gt40s and yeah, yeah. all the stuff and it's just you feel like you said at the beginning like the noise the noise of all these cars back then and just any car basically yeah. before now okay current gt3 <laughs> cars do some they sound badass yeah but even ours are silence like we've got we run an extra silencer now compared to the sls mm. just because of racing regulations and actually when we went back to daytona the second year we we tried to get the homologation with only the one silencer yeah. and it sounded so so good <laughs> but uh but they wouldn't give us the homologation for it sadly it's, yeah it's there's just unfortunately some of the times but as i said earlier like we, we've wicked. got we've got used to quiet motorsport which is a bit of a shame yeah it is most racing drivers i meet aren't necessarily road car guys that does that sound right like is it because they're like okay i I can't take it on track or can't push it on track. Yeah, Are you yeah. a road car guy as well? I think I'm more of a classic road car guy. So, Right. What's your era? So a few years ago at Goodwood, my dad was looking at uh, 
Mercedes Benz 190 SL and it's like he showed me it on the auction it's like wow that thing's stunning kind of thing it looked mm. in mint condition so we ended up we signed up on onto the website in fact we were meant to be going down it's like yeah we'll go on the Saturday we'll go to the auction and we'll have a look at it and all that anyway on Friday morning he gets a phone call they're like uh, Mr Christo uh, where are you and he's like I'm at work why we're waiting for you it's like well, what for you guys I'm not there until tomorrow they're like no 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 it's today your ticket's today he's like no it's not he's like let me just get it and like, he obviously lost it kind of thing. he's like Adam how fast can you get down to Goodwood I was like like we, back then we were both in Birmingham at the time and I was just thinking it's like it's going to be at least a four hour drive to yeah, get yeah. there with all the traffic and everything and he's like oh no Friday as well and he's like god damn it so anyway so he's like right so we ended up we registered for the auction online and he was like well maybe we should just check that it works we had two computers on the go just in yeah. case one of them didn't work kind of thing this is my dad in a nutshell like he obsesses over things so. like, and he, he's brilliant like he's he always keeps us entertained he's always doing something random and too loud at the time so anyway he's like right we need two laptops two different credit cards on it just in case blah, blah, blah. he's like maybe we should just check on one of the other lots whether it works can bid or whatever, yeah, yeah. Whether, whether we can bid so anyway so we left it until the the lot before like well maybe we'll bid on this one and he was about to and I was like hold on we'll just wait for one person to bid <laughs> and no one bidded on this thing <laughs> and so we almost bought some like I don't know some donkey thing yeah, like yeah. for like 30 grand <laughs> just testing it it was like okay then well it's now or never kind of thing so anyway thank- thankfully it worked and uh, and we picked it up at auction and we got it for a real steal like it's in mint condition and super cool to drive we've ended up putting a screen just behind the drives just to reduce the buffering that's the only modern thing we've added mm. to it it's just cool to drive like old school super heavy the guy ended up selling it because basically he restored it and all of that but he's quite a bit older and he just said he just can't drive it. it's just too hard for him to yeah. drive but he didn't want to add any electric clu- steering, like, steering or any of the clutch or anything just to make it easier because like to press the brake like you've got to put your leg into it kind of thing and so and you got a manhandle that's like if you got a it's parallel, a massive if, yeah, yeah. If you got a parallel park it, you're like, <laughs> like you're, you're having to put your whole body into it, kind of thing. And so I really enjoy that. And then we've also we inherited my my granddad's uh, old SEL three hundred, and that that thing's really cool. An old six point three liter beast. Uh, it's the same as like the red pig that raced at Spa. Yeah. Uh, many years ago when it finished second except obviously they bought that thing out to 6.8 litres ours is still the original mm. 6.3 and handles like a bus but it's brilliant bit of a Mercedes trend then well yeah and, and it's just I suppose by fluke luck like that was obviously my, my granddad's car and then and yeah but this was before like signed with yeah, Mercedes yeah. Uh, with AMG uh, I suppose just a, a fortunate fan at the time yeah, and, yeah. and obviously it's 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 turned into so something like, pretty cool do you get a, a car to drive do they give you a car Yes, I do. So we get a choice of three. So I, I've got a C43 coupe at the moment and yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So uh, so I've got that and then obviously I've got my two Clio's I yeah. teach in and stuff. So like if, I, if I'm coaching in them, I drive them to, to, the, to the circuit or to Brentingthorpe, wherever I'm using it. But yeah, my everyday car is is the AMG C43. Is it good? Yeah, it's awesome. Four-wheel drive. It's quite fun when the traction control's off in a grass <laughs> car park at Donington or somewhere. Um, <laughs> so, no, it's, it's got plenty of go in it. And, and, okay, not that it ever snows here, but I think uh, it's really popular further east where, obviously, they get the heavy, deep snow and yeah. stuff just because the four-wheel drive of it's really good. And so, yeah, it's, it's ideal. Super practical. Okay, normally towards the end of these podcasts, I have a few questions. Okay. So, I've got some questions for you. <clears throat> do you have a most 
What's your most memorable driving trip or journey? Road trip, is it? Yeah. You could, you could also say race, I guess, because you're a race driver. Um, okay, so most memorable one was as part of a, a team, we got a Guinness World Record. And basically we had to drive through as many countries as we could on a single tank of fuel. Okay. And so a bit random. This was, this was 2015. So before I signed with AMG, basically, I got the phone call like the week before. They said, right, this is the plan. They'd been planning it for, for months. And then they realized that they wanted a driver with a bit more experience. And so basically we started off at the very, as far south as we could in Holland. And uh, we ended up doing a Guinness World Record going for as many countries as we could on a single tank of fuel. So we had the Guinness World Record woman with us. We had the RAC also sponsored and supported yeah. us for that. And, and unfortunately, it was it was in the wrong brand car. But uh, It was in another so, car. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but this was really cool. So like, it was quite strange. So you want to take a random guess how many countries we managed on a tank of fuel? Something silly. I'm just going to say six, maybe more. Okay. So it's a few more. So in the end, we managed to go through through 14 countries 14 yes that's good going on on tank of fuel so uh, in fact hold on let me let me tell you some of the stats hold on let me just (laughs) find right so we did 14 countries and we managed to drive 1158.9 miles what on the tank of fuel how big was this tank so like we averaged the speed of like i think it was like 51 kilometers an hour during the whole of this journey so like obviously you get into top gear and then you just cruise at minimum revs kind of thing and we averaged like 76 mpg so we ended up we started in holland we went to belgium luxembourg france switzerland Liechtenstein, austria germany italy slovenia croatia bosnia that was interesting serbia and then hungary is where we finished good going um and so they figured out the most or the the best route to get through the most efficient route to get through all these countries and they also managed to find like almost the flattest route as well to to go through all, all of this so we had two cars doing it and then we had a, a few support vehicles as well. And so, so, so that, that for me was quite interesting. Like I ended up, we did four hour stints, half an hour off, four hour stints, half an hour off. And each car was almost full of people. And I did the first two stints and then I was like, right, okay, you can drive now. And I thought, right, I'll have a sleep. And I just couldn't sleep. And I was just bored and uncomfortable. Yeah, so yeah. I was like, oh, I'll do the next one. They're like, okay, then. oh, I'll do the next one. Okay, then oh, I'll do the next one. So anyway, it's in the end, like it, it took like 35 hours or something. <sighs> But it's like it sounds like a long time, but actually it went so quick. And I don't know whether it's just because normally when I'm driving somewhere, I'm late and <laughs> in a rush trying to get there. Whereas for this trip, I think I just had the mentality that I just got to keep on driving as efficiently as possible and get there. And so, so that was that was that was really cool. Just exploring some of these countries as well. And like we came through, uh, I think it's Slovenia, and like there was mountains either side and we're in this valley and like literally the sunrise is just like coming over the crest kind of thing and it's like i don't know five in the morning and the sky was just like mm. stunning and it's just like wow and also like when we went through uh, Liechtenstein, like you could see the castle and like the sun was setting at that point and it's just like it was almost like money can't buy Super like, cool. yeah, yeah just just an awesome road trip kind yeah. of thing sounds like a good one though not a fast one but uh but interesting but yeah different okay next question five car garage <clears throat> unlimited value it's got to fit into your lifestyle. That's about it. So, I'd have. You uh, can have road cars and an original Gullwing. Yeah, I would have. I drove a Mercedes Benz seven two two Sterling Moss Oof. years ago, and Oof. that 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 was brilliant. Like we drove that and a Bugatti, and 
I think just because it was rear wheel drive, we're like, we got lost and we were going down this country road and the guy was, in, I was like, can I just like whip it around? And he's like, yeah, go on then. So of course, traction control off, spun it around <laughs> enough and we went kind of thing, like in a puff of smoke. Yeah. And uh, the Bugatti that was following us had to do like a 17 point turn, like, <laughs> and then like eventually caught us up. But it was, a, it was just a cool driver's car. So, so you've got an old classic, you've got a nuts. Oh, the, is it the CLK Le Mans? Well, like the DTM. No, the the ones that race at the mic. Oh, They're GTR. Like, yeah, that yeah, that yeah. that would be super super cool. So, obviously, a bit of a trend going on here with the Mercs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm slightly biased, but um, so I think that would be cool. So you've got three, two more. Two What's more. your daily in this scenario? Obviously, I don't know. God, oh, man, I should have prepped. You're slightly limited by one brand, to be fair. Yeah, well, I am at the moment. No, I don't have to be, though. Like, I suppose, like, an old, original Ford GT40, that'd be pretty yeah. cool. But I suppose I still need a modern-day car, don't I? You need a daily. Wow. I mean, you could hey, daily like, any if, of those. If, if, if it's like money can't buy up, like, then... You... Money no object, you can daily anything. Well, yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's what I was thinking. I don't know. And then maybe something sensible, sensible like uh, an E63 yeah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Is that sensible? Yeah, that's reasonably sensible. <laughs> you, can get, you can get more than, uh, than one passenger in. So, yeah, you can put uh, some luggage in. All that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so, an estate version Don't need of a it. starter motor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. If you, could only drive, if you could only drive one car for the rest of your life, what would it be? You're allowed a 500-pound beater. <laughs> uh, if I could only drive one car for the rest of my life, it would have to be. Oh man, I was really unprepared for all of these questions. Actually, what did you pick? Uh, for me, it would be some sort of 911, maybe like a singer or something like that. Oh yeah, that'd be pretty cool. It, it'd be some. It would be yeah, some classic. But I, I just don't know which one. Don't know. Okay, we'll, we'll move on. Is there a car that you think is undervalued at the moment, like market-wise? As in. Either it's amazing value. Or the AMGs. All of the Everyone AMGs. Everyone buy more. <laughs> <laughs> buy more so we can go more, uh, do more racing. Um, I saw, <laughs> I saw a, a, a rumour that 
with the next 63, you might be a four-cylinder, obviously. I, I saw something like that the other day too. I, I don't... Like well, the, you, you can't believe everything you read, can you? Like until the, it happens. The, yeah. No, we, we, we're not involved in any of yeah. that stuff. So we get involved in the race car stuff and... Uh, and obviously that's super cool, but, yeah, that, but it's that, a completely different. That would potentially so. downsize your race car. It might become a four cylinder. Well, yeah, I, I suppose not anytime soon. I think no. So the the new AMG GT3 has just come out. So we've got the bigger front grille on it. It's got a, a hell of a lot more cooling for the brakes for the driver. We've got like all the cooling seats and everything for it now. We've got new ABS traction control system, new rear wing design, like Formula One style, so they can literally just plug a. a a spanner into the end to spin it around and that'll increase or decrease the, the okay. wing angle and so that's come out so we'll be we're going to be racing that at least for the next four years i believe okay, um yeah. so so got that to, to look forward to so i'll be jumping in that soon to do a little bit of running in that i was involved a lot with the gt3 development and the gt4 that's out and so i'll have a little taste of that in in a few weeks so so that would be pretty cool What's the question again? How, oh, yeah, most a, undervalued car. I don't know. I, I'm not that much of a road car. Like, I like the classic road cars, but I don't pay attention. You're not that much. I don't pay attention up on to what's, what's coming yeah, out and all exactly. that stuff. Okay, perfectly fair. Right. What's the most int- the, the final one? You you should be able to answer this one. What's the most interesting car to you at the moment? Like, if you you might find yourself like googling something or you've heard about it, like, oh, that sounds quite cool. Could be a race car, could be a road car. I've always wanted a project of a classic, like mm. having a classic car and restoring it. And so, as a kid, I was, all, and I suppose I still am, a huge mini fan. Like, yeah, I think that's the kind of level that I'd be able to manage right now. Um, so, I'd love a classic mini that we'd be able to restore from, like, getting all the rust off it and getting it all stripped down, getting it painted how I wanted, and put like the Cooper S kit on it, so it's got the the flared arches and stuff. I think that would be pretty cool and i always end up finding myself like every few years like just re like <laughs> pricing one upon revisiting it. Like, yeah, yeah like pricing it upon auto trader but also like some of the classic porsches with the with the wide body kits yeah. are, are pretty sexy looking so i think maybe i'd start off with the mini first just to understand how much money I'm gonna end up, yeah, <laughs> how much money Burn. i'm gonna waste on on, on on doing a project like this yeah there's there's another thing at the, the at Ricard, you see all these RSRs and 935s and just generally old, cool racing cars dragging around. Yeah, and yeah. then massive flames, like yeah, yeah. obscene flames coming well, out That's when back. you had carburettors and yeah. like, they just dumped fuel in for the fun of it. And like, of and I think all cars should make... Presumably, <laughs> all, cars should make all cars should make flames. <laughs> like all race cars. If you want your car... To get looked at by a lot of eyeballs, <laughs> it, it's got to we flame need to a bit. Fire, <laughs> <laughs> and it can't be that much slower just to have a little bit more fuel. <laughs> oh, I don't think it's slower at all. Like when I raced in the Mazda RX-8, like this thing, I screamed. It sounded like yeah. it was doing fifteen thousand RPM. It's doing like nine and a half or something, which is obviously a lot still. But like when when you lift it off, like the flames that this thing spat out were like a meter and a half long, kind of thing. And like. You didn't want to be in the car next to us because yeah. like you'd have no tires or like <laughs> number stickers or anything left on the side. It's an of extra the car. factor you can work with as a driver. <laughs> yeah. But it's quite it was quite warm to race in that was. But um that, I suppose it's more of the old school like just with how they had to cool down the cars yeah. and stuff that, that that was I suppose quite pleasing to the eye <laughs> seeing something cool like that happen. It is very cool. Right. Well that's uh I think that's that's about it. Mega. 
Thank you very much. Co- well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. It's, hope I haven't rambled on for too long. Well, I can tell you. <laughs> We've been oh, probably geez. about two hours. Solid. There's going to be some serious amount of uh, editing. A bit of, bit of editing. It's all good. <laughs> Lots of cutting out. Any <laughs> beeping of any bad words. And... Nah, all good. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Cheers.